Hi, and welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Krauss. This past summer, I had a remarkable dialogue with a journalist, Jonathan Kay, uh, who defies all labels. And one of the things I really enjoy about him is that um, his background and his experience is all over the map. And of course, because it's an Origins podcast, we began with his origins, which are really quite interesting. He has a master's degree in engineering from McGill University in Canada, and then went and did a, a law degree at the Yale Law School for a while he was a tax lawyer before he slowly drifted into writing and journalism. And he was a founding editor uh, on the editorial board of the National Post and has written for many different magazines and is now uh, an editor and writer at Quillette, the online uh, journal. He's also written books and also ghostwritten books and helped other people with the books. Among other things, he helped uh, Justin Trudeau with his memoir, which is interesting since many people might want to classify Jonathan because of his background as a conservative writer. Well, that's what I say. He defies uh, simple labels. And our conversation began around a, a, a story that he had recently broke, a huge investigative story, 15,000 words for Quillette that he'd written about a claimed sex ring in the psychology department at McMaster University, which turned out to be ultimately a, a, a hoax, but not before many people's careers were impacted. And he, he investigated this in great detail, both its origins, its impact on the local community, how local newspapers ran with the story without necessarily knowing any details. And it's a very interesting example of how fake news, if you will, and salacious fake news can propagate throughout the media. And, and we discussed journalism or more generally, both the state of journalism in the world and his own stories that he's written on not just the, the, uh, the uh, McMaster story, but uh, stories on, uh, on in the indigenous residential schools and the big uh, um, scandals that were claimed about mass graves there. Uh, also uh, on uh, stories related to, in fact, the... Um, James Webb Space Telescope and uh, and claims about James Webb himself and again misstated claims about James Webb. It was it was a, a really fascinating discussion, as I say, about the state of journalism with a, a remarkably fascinating man, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. You can watch it ad free on our Critical Mass Substack Substack channel, which is support which supports uh, the nonprofit Origins Project Foundation, which produces this podcast. So I hope you'll consider subscribing to that Substack site, or you can watch it on our YouTube channel. I hope you'll consider subscribing to that or listen to it on any podcast site. Uh, but however you listen to it or watch it, I think you'll find this discussion with Jonathan Kay remarkably interesting and insightful about the state of journalism, politics, and writing in the modern world. Enjoy. Well, Jonathan, thanks a lot for agreeing to be on the show. I've wanted to have you on for a while, and it's nice to be able to spend some time with you, at least virtually. I yeah, appreciate the opportunity. It's, um, I've been a, you know, I guess I first knew you being a fan of, of, of your writing, and, um, and then got to know you a little bit as we, as you've edited some of my writing, and which, and in spite of that, I like you. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, uh, yeah. I, I, as you may know, this is an origins podcast, and I try to. I want to talk to you about your writing and some of the key, fascinating stories you've been working on. But I like to 
find out about people's origins and how they got to where they are at the beginning of each episode. And sometimes it takes a fair fraction of it because it's fascinating to me and I hope to people who listen. But the first surprise to me was that you, you, you uh, did your degrees in engineering and I was shocked to see that. And um, so let, but let's go before we get there, let's go further back. I know, I, I know your mother, Barbara from a writer. I learned your father was a financial person. I wondered, so tell me about the upbringing. Um, was politics uh, a, a frequent subject of discussion in the house? Yeah, uh, I, I think for a certain kind of late 20th century Jewish household, especially in a place like Montreal, it's just politics is kind of inescapable. Yeah. Uh, so you have the politics of language and Quebec separatism within the Anglo community in Quebec. I'm not going to belabor the parochial politics of yeah. uh, of Quebec, but it's, um, especially in the late 20th century, there was a lot of separatist agitation and the, the Anglo community felt sometimes beleaguered by the French majority in Quebec, which itself felt beleaguered by the Anglo majority in Canada as a whole. Again, Canadian politics are so fascinating to international listeners that uh, I'm sure they're they want me to go on for hours, but I will resist that. <laughs> well, you know, it, it uh, it's interesting. I, you're you're 15 years younger than me or so. And um, so I experienced that in a in a direct way. I remember um, I remember the War Measures Act, which I'm not. Yeah, which I, Trudeau. Yeah. And, uh, um, Pierre Trudeau, I should. Yeah. The other <laughs> Trudeau. Say. Yeah. The other Trudeau, yeah, we should say. Yeah. And yeah, um, that was uh, the FLQ. That was a legitimate though minor by by international standards a terrorist campaign in, yeah they in killed they they yeah. killed a a, a well-known cabinet uh, minister yeah. pierre laporte and yep. um and i remember it because uh, my brother was actually he's now a southern american republican but he was a uh, he was a separatist in quebec and taught at the uh university de sherbrooke law school and um, wow and and i wow. only spoke i only spoke french to him for 10 years. I only spoke in, to, he, he had completely assimilated. And so it was an interesting time. Uh, he was, a, I think he was a student then in Ottawa and I, he got arrested briefly during that time, during the, during that. If you didn't get arrested at least once as a student in those yeah. days, you know, I mean, uh, although that's interesting. It's like six degrees of Lawrence Krauss. I, I, I had no idea. Um, yeah. anyway, but on top of the, again, parochial Canadian Quebecois politics, you also had a lot of the questions about Zionism in the Middle East that Jewish communities, maybe less so now, but certainly uh, during that period, you know, Montreal had an unusually high concentration of Holocaust survivors among oh. its sizable Jewish community at the time. Uh, my oh. mother was involved in the City Bronfman Center, which uh, at the time, and I think still had a very prominent role in the cultural life of, uh, of, of Jews. Uh, our household was never especially religious. Uh, I myself call myself a lapsed Jew because I'm, I'm not observant. But that's most Jews. I think you, yeah. you you're part of the majority. I'm part of the majority. Um, but but certainly Jewish in a cultural and political sense. So there was just a lot of talk. Again, I, I think most people who grew up in this kind of household will know that uh, certain kinds of political questions about identity, about belonging, about bigotry anti-Semitism, certainly Zionism, you know, foreign policy, 
uh, all of this was was kind of part of the oxygen of of daily family conversations uh so so yeah politics was a big part of it but also you know maybe closer to home for you science was also a big part of my upbringing i was so gonna my, ask about that yeah so my dad was uh he was he was an only child who grew up in a russian exile community in uh in in china so oh, uh wow. e yeah yeah northeast northeastern china wow uh, mid-20th century had a sizable white uh russian and, and also sizably Jewish population, largely composed of, of emigres, um, who, who actually helped the Chinese build build out the railroad. Um, oh, that's the, the reverse of Canada. <laughs> a little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's when my, 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 my dad grew up, came to Canada as part of, you know, those whole complex series of population movements after World War II. Uh, he and his, his mother and father ended up in Canada. None of them spoke much English, including my father. Got wow. deposited in a Montreal school, I think around the age of 10, speaking barely any English. He was, he's a Russian speaker. Yeah. Uh, and, and eventually he became an engineer. And then, oh. yeah, so he was a metallurgical engineer. Uh, yeah. And he went to McGill University. I ended up not having any idea what to do with my life. I ended up as a metallurgical engineer. I did a, a master's degree. So my master's work focused on thermodynamics and fluid flow. And so mm -hmm. I, wrote I wrote computer simulations of uh, heat transfer and fluid flow in, in pyrometallurgical processes. So like blast furnaces and all that stuff that it, basically extracting metal from ore. That was kind mm -hmm. of what I did. And then I realized that I liked writing computer simulations, but I wasn't particularly skilled at working in a industrial environment where I had to align theory with industrial reality. And I ended up at law school, uh, practiced as a tax lawyer for a couple of years in New York City, uh, realized I didn't like that very much. And at the age of 30, kind of began real life as a journalist, and that was 25 years ago. Well, you know, this, I, I want to unpack this because I do find it fascinating. I didn't, and now I even find it more fascinating because in some ways you followed both your parents careers then okay yep. i mean you're you're yep. i hadn't realized your father was a, an engineer and the same same field as you and and then of course your mother's a journalist uh, so you really did move in both areas but who so why did, i want to ask um this then leads me to maybe understand a little bit more about why you went to engineering did you did you go in because you're well when you were younger did either of your parents have more of an influence on you or did, did you, who did, did you talk science to your dad or did you, did you, was, uh, did you read books about science or was that ever, um, uh, um, so yeah, it's, um, so I think as, as a teenager for younger listeners, it's hard to communicate how oblivious teenagers of my generation were to the whole idea of like the future. And I, I, gave lots of thought to like what kind of car I wanted to drive and um you know the Montreal Expo starting rotation <laughs> and and if you ask me well what do you you know when I was 16 or 17 what do you want to be when you grow up I kind of just assumed I'd make a living but I didn't really know how and yeah. and this is in distinction you know I see my own kids who are at that age kids today are just 
much more focused on that. They they realize they have on, to get started. It's on a career. Yeah, we didn't think yeah. it, but when and I and I think it was even more so when I was younger. No one ever. When I went yeah. to school in the you know university in the in the early seventies, I, I you know mid seventies, yeah, no one thought cared about a career. And part of this is I'll say part of it is privilege because I grew up in um, in a Montreal Jewish community where every single person I knew went to college. Oh. Uh, it wasn't a question of whether you go to college; it was which college, how many degrees are you going to get. Um, I mean, I was sort of dimly aware in my bubble of privilege that there were people who didn't go to university, but we didn't even, it wasn't even something you talked about in, in my household or the household of my relatives. Was that, everyone went to... was that because you, uh, to some extent, was it because it was a Jewish household too? I mean, my, my parents, unlike your parents, my, neither of my parents went to finished high school, but it was, it wasn't. It wasn't even ever considered that my brother and I wouldn't go to university. That was where yeah. he was going to be a doctor. I was going to be. I mean, he was going to be a lawyer. I was going to be a doctor. He became a lawyer, as it turned out, and uh, and may have been at Yale Law School around the same time as you. Although he's a lot older, but he went back to anyway. Well, I want to ask about that. Well, yeah. Um, so I graduated. I graduated Yale Law in '97. Um, although I wasn't a particularly gifted law student, but I will say that part of this is because it may be. I don't want to say generational because between you and me, I think it's a fraction of a generation, but. Yeah. My mother, uh, my mother was born in, in Canada, and uh, her her own father came over from Poland when he was young, and I think her mom was actually might have been born in Canada. I'm not sure, but uh, so on her side, there was already, you know, a full generation of people who'd gone to university, mm -hmm. um, and 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 in that kind of immigrant culture, one generation makes a huge difference because my mother's father. Uh, literally, as a child, sold rags on the streets of Toronto out of a pushcart. Um, yeah, yeah shmata. I mean, it was like the lowest rung of the shmata yeah, business. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. And and so, uh, I mean, he was just part of this, like, you know, if Adventures of Augie March, like if, if you sort of, those immigrants, not necessarily Jewish stories, but immigrant stories, like starting from the very bottom in, in yeah. large American, or in this case, Canadian cities, people will recognize him as a, as a character. He was successful, worked hard. Um, uh, and, and then, you know, had children who could take for granted some of the, the trappings of, yeah. uh, of, of socioeconomic privilege in, in North America. And so, as I said, I, I just took it for granted. I'd go to university and this was still an age where if you went to university, you kind of just assumed you'd stumble into a good job. And mm -hmm. now that's not the case, right? Like, yeah. unless you're careful, you could get good marks in university and, and end up in in working at McDonald's, not that there's anything wrong with working at McDonald's. I've worked yeah, at McDonald's, but, but but it's not something you maybe aspire to after investing three or four years of education. And um, so again, I didn't think about it, but I had the habits of mind of an engineer because my dad was always very gifted. But uh, by the way, both my parents are still around and uh, probably will listen to this. So I don't <laughs> want to speak about them in the past tense. Um, but he he had the habits of mind and speech of an engineer. So like when talking to me as a kid, he'd say things like, Hey, you ever wonder why ice floats? I said, no, no, why does ice float? And he'd say, oh. well, let's talk about density. And then, uh, let's talk about what would happen if like most solids, uh, ice were, were more dense than its liquid form. You know, life wouldn't exist on the planet because exactly. the whole underside of lakes and ponds would just be, you know, a frozen tablet and 
you know, you'd get no no life developed. So even yeah. as a kid, he wow. Again, this wasn't engineering, but it was just looking at the world through an analytical lens. How lucky! Yeah, how lucky! I was very lucky. Yeah, and, yeah. and my mother, uh, had, I don't think has any particular interest or gift with math or science, but just gave me a completely like she'd give me books to read and she'd um, introduce me to to writers that I came to love and, and some that I came not to love um you know like she introduced me to george orwell at a young age which i did love and yeah sure how could you know um and then you know she's always been passionate about mystery novels so that's something that i didn't much care for but ah. uh there were always just plenty of books in our house and i was so, going to ask about books it's, 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 parents and books are, are two things and and that are are important and i so your mother sort of was the encouraging for books your father was the encour encouraged you to think you know analytically about the world and uh, by the way i meant to tell you my physics teacher jokingly said that the fact that water is one of the few substances that expands when it freezes was proof of god um but, but he meant it as a joke <laughs> yeah um, um it's uh <laughs> i mean it's one of these little things that is, is the, the key to life right yeah, um, yeah life wouldn't exist on earth if if yeah. rivers and oceans froze from the bottom up yeah um but uh, so parents, um, no, but your father eventually, like many engineers, in fact, like I, th I think like the majority of engineers, frankly, left and went and, and, and either became management or finance. Is that is that uh, the case? Yeah. Was he so uh, he was a metallurgical engineer um, and in Canada at the time still uh, had a, a large uh, mining and as a result of mining, a large or processing industry and so he he eventually made a living doing things like going off to mines or geological discoveries you know people were deciding whether it would become a mine and he had the expertise to evaluate whether it was a good investment based on things like you know what's the concentration of of precious metal within yeah. you know the ore samples and how accessible is it and um and that's how he made a living and then eventually he became um you know open to other investment opportunities and he got into biotech um oh, but smart. yeah as you say there's a lot of engineers who are able to translate their knowledge of some core element of like design engineering or process engineering uh into um, expertise in a particular business area and in turn, you know, over the course of your career, they, they can do all sorts of things. Yeah. But that wasn't the what you decided. That wasn't the direction you decided you want to go in. But before we get to law school, it still amazed me because it is a jump. I'm, I mean, I'm often wondered what, I guess, you know, how much of a jump it would have been for me to consider law school when I graduated. But before then we talked about, you know, both your parents and books and science, but the one, uh, one thing I did want to ask was about school. Um, school, was that an encouragement to you? And did that, did you like science in school or d were teachers particularly useful in terms of encouraging you to read or write? Or was it, you know, I found, I've, it's amazed to find that people have mixed, some of them, for some of them, te really good teachers were instrumental in their life. And for others, they found school got in the way. So I'm, I'm inter always interested to find out what, in your case. In, so uh, I think there's a certain type I think like maybe Bill Gates is the paradigmatic example where he's just this, this guy who had a kind of monomania for computers. Yeah. 
And he was never going to have a teacher who was going to match his own enthusiasm level or, or native skill in that area. So, I mean, I think in Bill Gates's exam, I don't think he even got a college degree. He was just... Well, yeah, he, a, did, he did drop out of... Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, then I think <laughs> well below that level <laughs> of intellect and success, there's somebody like me who had gifts, but he definitely needed teachers to encourage them. And... Uh, I, again, part of my privilege, uh, you know, I, I went to a, a good school. It was called Selwyn House. It was like a, you know, little Victorian suit and tie boys school in Montreal. Oh. Uh, it was sort of like a lot of, uh, call it, I guess, immigrant communities. Like the Anglo community in Montreal was more Anglo than the the source community in UK. Yeah. Sometimes these communities get frozen in time. So if you looked at the old stock wasp Anglo community in Westmount, which is yeah. where a lot of the, it it became like, you know, something that looked not quite like 19th century UK, but like we had these schools where we wear a suit and tie and we sang God Save the Queen when I was in very early grades. And um, we said grace before meals and stuff. Uh, and it also happened to be a very good school with outstanding English teachers and science teachers and math teachers. I was able to learn calculus in grade 11. And so by the time I got to university, um, you know, calculus wasn't an issue for me. Yeah. Statistics, linear algebra. I was able to breeze through all that stuff in part because I had teachers who taught it well and encouraged it. And it made math fun for me. And if math is fun, then engineering yeah is i wouldn't say it's a breeze um there were courses that were challenging for me boundary value problems is something that to this day is uh, <laughs> gives me nightmares uh and i know electrical engineers who can who still work with boundary value problems uh if you've never had to do bvp it's i don't recommend it uh <laughs> what about physics though why i always wonder why people is it because of a job i mean or maybe you know because to me well you know i when i was chair of a department we actually created an engineering physics degree to encourage, um, you know, engineers who are interested in science to be able to get a, a degree, you know, a degree that would allow, you know, give them a credential and also allow them to, f you know, focus a little more on some of the science. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have a mixed relationship with physics because physics is almost too broad a term for it's, I mean, physics is about understanding the universe. And so I tell people it says, Oh, I don't like physics. I like chemistry. And I say, well, chemistry is physics. Uh, it's the physics of atoms and it's the yeah. physics of electrons. And right. you know, if, if you're studying electron orbitals, guess what? You're studying physics. Yeah. Um, I used to, I used to like to teach all of chemistry in one lesson when I taught quantum mechanics, I'd say, now we're going to do all of chemistry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you understand orbitals, then you know, yeah. you're, uh, and and I'm, by the way, I'm sure there are people in chemistry and in physics who who it is kind of blurry whether they're they're chemists or whether yeah, they're sure there are because, physical chemists. Yeah, um, I mean, I my my most of my latter exposure to physics came in terms of analyzing things like um, you know the transition between uh, laminar and, and turbulent flow in in fluids. Uh, the kind of engineering I was in, there was a lot of like analysis of like well how much pressure is required to um to push a certain kind of like um non-newtonian fluid down 100 meters of pipe at, a, at a, a facility and 
Well, ultimately, at the end of the day, 99% of the time, these things get reduced to rule of thumb formulas that sit in engineering trade books. Yeah. Which was always kind of unsatisfying for me because as a grad student, you're always like, well, you know, forget the formula. Let's figure this out from first principles. That's design. The, that, that was you sounding like a physicist more than an engineer there. Well, yeah, except I never had the brain power to actually like do it from first principles. So at the end of the day, I was like everybody else. I relied on these uh, rule of thumb, uh, you know, sort of call them cheat codes. Uh, and um, I did really enjoy, though, the theory of, especially heat transfer, you know, heat transfer, that was, I guess I had a fantastic um, thesis supervisor. His name is Frank Mucciardi. Uh, he, he subsequently took on a leadership role in engineering as a whole at McGill. And I, to me, the greatest quality you should look for in a thesis advisor is somebody who has an emotional connection with the subject matter. So mm -hmm. in the case of Frank Mucciardi, um, so again, there's probably more detail than you want about my, my master's work, but no, sure. Um, I designed um, this experimental apparatus to, we were ex dealing with something called the heat pipe, which is, is it's a phase transformation based way of, of um, they actually use it, I think, in some astrophysical applications. Um, you have a, uh, an intervening medium, in this case it was sodium, and you're evaporating the the working substance, in this case sodium, at one end of the heat pipe, and it the gas flows to the other end, which is the heat sink, and then it um, it turns into a liquid and ejects the the heat associated with phase transformation, and then it, it goes back to the the heat source, and so. This, this has lots of applications in, in pyrometallurgy. And so anyway, so I, I built this contraption out of, of Pyrex, and instead of sodium, we used, um, I think it was called naphthalene. It's basically, I think, sodium hexafluoride, if I remember correctly. It was, it's the stuff you make mothballs out of. Mm -hmm. And I set the apparatus up, and we had it going, and it worked great. Like, it's just a, a, if anyone wants to, they can read my master's thesis. It's at <laughs> McGill University. Um, but what... I remember was I set up the apparatus, I took my measurements, I made sure it worked, and then I went home. And then like an hour later, I realized I forgot something I needed at school, and I came back, and I saw Frank Mucciardi, my, my thesis supervisor, still looking at it, like still watching it run, like it was the greatest television program he'd ever seen. <laughs> like he was binge watching it. You know, this is the days before Netflix. Yeah, yeah. I said, Frank, like, what the hell are you doing? Like, this, it's like 8 p.m. or something. He says, yeah, I know, but it's just so mesmerizing, isn't it? And I thought, oh, my God, what a nerd. And But then I also thought, like, this is the quality you want in a thesis supervisor. And it also convinced me this is why I'm never going to become a professor. Because mm -hmm. I think, I don't think it's a, a sufficient condition to be a successful academic. I do think it's a necessary condition to become an academic. And so that moment, I think, taught me like this is the kind of this is the kind of relationship you have to have with science and then that particular aspect of science to really spend the next 30 or 40 years of your life mm -hmm. publishing papers and supervising other people and setting up experiments and recording data and all the frustrations that go with it. Sure. Because um, not, not every experiment is going to be successful. Mm -hmm. And, and if I may tax your patience on this, 
this was the same thing that convinced me to get out of law because I was a tax lawyer. This is several years later. I was a tax lawyer on Park Avenue catering to these very wealthy clients who, you know, wanted to escape taxation on the, uh, you know, when they'd sell assets and stuff. And, and my boss, his name was Nat Boydman. Uh, he worked out of Montreal. He was this legendary tax lawyer. Um, like he would spend his weekend reading about this stuff. <laughs> and I remember once I, I called his office on a Saturday just to leave a message. And he answers the phone. I said, Nat, what are you doing at the office on Saturday? He says, oh, I was just reading this new paper on international taxation and I just lost track of time, you know? And I was like, no, I don't know. I think that's like, that's that. That's absolutely foreign to me. But then I realized like, it was the same thing as Frank Nucciardi looking at the tabletop experiment. Like this was his Netflix. And and if that's your Netflix, that's a great way to make your career. Was yeah, I mean, have, yeah. I mean, look, that's I love those stories because, you know, I, I think it's true. And I think you've elaborated that it's true in every field. But I can certainly attest. I've often tell people that scientists you know, don't do science because they want to save the world or, you know, they do it because it's it gives them great pleasure. Yeah. And, it, and they couldn't possibly do it well if it didn't, because you can't spend, as you point out, 20 years on stuff, most of which is a lot of which is frustrating or fails. If in some way it didn't give you an, uh, some kind of positive uh, personal and emotional feedback. And I think it's true if you want to excel in any profession and, and, and you know, you've indicated it. But and that, journalism. That's, let, let me journey. ask you, it's, but it, then I'm, I am intrigued because you, when did you, so you graduated in engineering, you never worked in engineering, you decided right away you wanted to go to law school and, and why? What was it about law school? Was it a job? Was it a matter of sort of a, a career that might have a job afterwards or was it something else? No. So the law school thing, by this time, I guess I was already in my early 20s and I retained the same completely ignorant, childlike uh, <laughs> naivete about professional life. And I just kind of assumed that if I picked the right field, professional life would be sort of very similar to what I was studying. And I had this very good friend who I went to high school with. Uh, he uh, also from Montreal and his name was Chris Naughty. And we would, we would study at the library together in McGill. And he was studying for the LSAT, the law school admission test. Yeah. And uh, I remember he was showing me what he was doing. And it was like, you know, you'd read something and you have to answer questions. Yeah. And uh, my favorite, like these, I think it was called logical reasoning. It was like, Sally is having a dinner party and A can't sit next to B and C has to be across from D and E and F can't be like, I was like, oh, wow, cool. I love doing stuff like this. Like, I guess this is what being a lawyer is like. So I'll become a lawyer. <laughs> and... <laughs> And then I, uh, and by the way, part of law school is kind of like that, not with dinner parties, but, you know, with sort of the arguments you make for, yeah, yeah. yeah like it's not, you know, maybe it's maybe 20% like that. And that was the part I was good at. And then as with engineering, the part where it was more real life application of theory wasn't really my strong suit. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I was a tax lawyer and tax Why law. Why tax law? I mean, I, I hate to say it, but that sounds to me like the most boring possible part of law. Well, that's, that's a stereotype. Uh, yeah. yeah. So tax, I like tax law because it was kind of as Logical. close to the academic aspect yeah. as you'd get in any kind of branch of law. Like if you're doing, I don't know, things like labor law or 
uh, or litigation, you know, there's a lot of like kind of strategizing and, you know, client management. Um, but tax law is like there are certain aspects, you know, when you're structuring transactions, it's not that different from structuring a dinner party in an LSAT question. Like, yeah, no, I can see it now that you mentioned it. Yeah. It's sort of a. Now, the problem is if you're interested in changing the world, it's not like I'm, um, you know, Nelson Mandela or anything like that, yeah. but you're kind of making rich people richer. Uh, so your typical client, I was working, I was working for a firm called Goodman Phillips Feinberg, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, I was, it was a Canadian firm. This was their New York city office. And most of our clients were, were very wealthy Toronto or Montreal based companies or individuals or families that were trying to like, you know, buy and sell us based assets and not yeah. pay a lot of tax and surprise, surprise, a lot of these people had a lot of money to begin with. And yeah. my job was to make sure they still had a lot of money at the end of the transaction, which again, like was kind of fun from a logic games point of view, Yeah, but it didn't feel like the most important <laughs> work in the universe. Yeah. Um, and you know, again, you don't have to be a social justice warrior to yeah. maybe think, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with that work. I don't, yeah. it's not like when I quit, I was like wrote, social justice graffiti on the side of the building, yeah. you know, explaining why I didn't nail any theses to the door yeah. of the law firm, but it wasn't for me. And, uh, and I was just more drawn to, um, the fact, you know, in journalism, I could write about a hundred different things. Yeah. Tax sure. law. Like the thing is, if you're a writer, you like writing about anything. So the part of being a tax lawyer that I liked is when my boss would say, Hey, I want you to write a memorandum about this new change that has been made to the estate tax law. And even though I was writing about something like just really most people would find incredibly boring, and at the end of the day, maybe I found boring, the act of putting words on the page to explain this stuff, I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And that's, for those who are foolish enough to ask me for career advice, the number one advice, it's not just me who, who offers this, is what is the aspect of your current job, if any, that you enjoy? And how can you extrapolate that to full-time employment? In the, so being a lawyer, the 20 or 30% of the job that involved writing, even on extremely technical uh, subjects, I liked. And I was like, okay, well, how can I do this all the time, but about like every week tackle two or three different okay. subjects. So I'm not just writing about law. And that's kind of how I stumbled into journalism. So you, okay. So I hold that thought because I, I think that's interesting. You sort of, I've off, I know a lot of people who, and interesting enough, sort of late, not late in life, but at a mid-career or, or early career level, suddenly realize, hey, I want to do something else. And interestingly enough, it's not something that different than one of my parents do. I'm, one of the most famous examples I know is like one of the smartest physicists in the world, if not the smartest, a guy named Ed Witten, who sort of developed string theory. He he was he was doing politics. He actually wrote uh, speeches for McCarthy. If if uh, if, if if you know Eugene. Uh, if if he had won, then Ed Witten might have become a, a White House aide, but then lost, and then Ed suddenly realized, oh, my father's a physicist. Maybe I should do that. And within about a year, he'd mastered <laughs> all of physics. Back. Yeah, yeah, and he, yeah. you know, he, yeah, yeah, and uh, but anyway, um, what this is solipsistic, or at least it's personal. But I, when did you enter Yale Law School? I'm just interested. Uh, ninety four. Oh, okay. And, uh, you just... and then I graduated ninety seven. Yeah, the okay. most famous person in my law school class because I, I I don't anticipate you're going to ask that question but people always ask me that like yeah. who was the Bill Clinton of your law school yeah. class I was Cory Booker uh, okay. yeah. who went on to uh, 
uh, make a huge name for himself yeah. uh, for mayor of Newark. And um, uh, of course, you know, he's a senator, Democratic senator. And he was a couple of months ago, I was at my 25th uh, law school reunion. He was there. Uh, always a charmer. Uh, we knew him. We knew he'd go far because I think he played tight end at Stanford. <laughs> and he was this like tall, good looking. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if he's mixed race or black or but just like most charming just uh lights up a room uh mm -hmm. brilliant and i think he had like one of his relatives were jewish or like he'd come to we do passover seders and he'd come and within five minutes i think he was like leading the service like even <laughs> it was just uh you you just knew this guy was was going places and uh, whatever you think of his politics i I don't think there's a person in my class who he didn't charm. I mean, he's just really interesting. Smart guy. Well, you yeah. know, it's, it's that's a key part of being a politician. No, I only ask because I taught at Yale, as you may or may not know, for almost ten years, and I I didn't know, I, I did not know that I was in teaching the physics department, and um, and I left because I didn't want my daughter to go to high school or middle school to high school in New Haven. But um, uh, uh, well, that's interesting because New Haven is the classic town and gown, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah no, it's just uh, it, it's exactly the minute you go outside the university as as one of my graduate students used to say it had all the disadvantages of a big city without any of the benefits but anyway uh um uh so i, I so i left in 90 uh, 93 so we almost overlapped uh if i can just say new haven is a fascinating place because i lived in the taft building uh, -huh. uh the southeast corner of college and, and chapel yeah uh, named after president taft who by yeah. the way was also a supreme court justice and a legislator i think he's the only president who wore the triple crown yeah and in the lobby of our building was a bar it was just the weirdest place because like it was just known that yale students didn't go to that bar yeah <laughs> it was like there were yale students living all over but that was that was a towny bar and there was a place across the street where the oh that was a towny bar that's where you go and and coming from canada where we don't have this as much um this sort of like checkerboard ghettos and stuff yeah. like that is the whole experience of living in new haven was such a mind-blowing mm -hmm. education in american the realities and and like the hypocrisies of, of american rhetoric about class and race and it's always one big melting pot and uh you know even you know at yale where i was surrounded by all these you know very well-meaning highly progressive mm -hmm. as term we didn't use them but we know you very progressive liberal people but they all lived in the same little enclaves yeah of course Milford yeah no you yeah. you play i there are parts of yale like that where i went once the you know, medical school you just wouldn't go that part of new haven yeah, yeah and the, yeah. and the building you were in i think i remember that i mean it was sort of depressing to me that there was it was sort of the only mall downtown and all the i think i remember when the macy's closed down i think it just, oh, just no, sort of felt like it was a disaster yeah yeah it it just it, and you go down there and it was like and it was like five blocks from my office and it was like a different world and it was it was depressing, but uh, I understand it, it. Let's go back to the discovery that you like to write, which is interesting. And and did it occur? And by the way, uh, again, since I always seem to make it's, it return to me at one time or another, I I like to write. And but I was really fortunate in the sense that my scientific career allowed me to to be. I mean, I had to sacrifice every now and then, but allowed me to do my science that I really enjoyed, and then. And then switch back and forth to writing and and uh it so i hadn't planned it that way but it turned out to be was nice about that is that is that you could balance 
and and you know back and forth as long as you stayed up most nights all night but um uh so being well, able to I write saying, i mean if you're successful enough at academia you can start writing your own ticket and exactly say, well, if you're yeah. i was lucky enough to be successful enough in science to be able to write and that was just and for some people that's that means that's university administration for other yeah, people and I, al I almost got suckered into that i'm so glad oh, boy, i did big mistake know. A big the dark mistake, side. Yeah. I've, yeah. I was just saying to someone else the other day that I've really never met an academic who's gone into administration who hasn't gone to the dark side, who hasn't been subsumed. And 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 I've I've only know actually I know one or two, and I've known a lot of deans and presidents, and they all become Darth Vader. But anyway, uh, uh, we'll talk about universities yeah, in a bit sure. uh, because that's it saddens me what 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 is yeah. happening. And um, okay, so you did it occur to you when you decided you want to be a journal when you realized that writing was what you really liked that your mother was a was a journalist and hey you know I, I did did you talk to her about the, that transition? So uh, my mother had always like dabbled in writing things like book reviews, yeah, uh, for things like the Montreal Gazette um, and other publications. She didn't become a columnist at the National Post, which is the Canadian newspaper yeah. where I started my journalistic career, until four years after I had been at the National Post. Oh. So, you know, much in the way there's like these families, like, like for instance, um, you know, Barbara Frum yeah. was a famous CBC broadcaster. Frum. And then, yeah. of course, David Frum and Linda Frum became writers and journalists. And I think sometimes, I, I'm certainly absolutely not as famous as, as, as any of the Frums, but I think sometimes people see that that my mother is a successful columnist and that I've been doing journalism for 25 years and they assume it was kind of a similar pattern. It's actually not. I became a full-time journalist in 98. My mother only became a weekly columnist, a regular columnist in 2002, four years later. Four years later. And uh, so in a way it was kind of the opposite because she saw that I was having a great time with the National Post. I, I made some introductions and uh, and I think she is she is certainly a more gifted natural columnist than I am because she has very strong opinions. She certainly does. Uh, I was I love doing journalism, I love writing essays, I love being an editor and a podcaster. But every week saying this is where the truth lies on issue X in seven hundred and fifty words, there's a certain um personality and talent that goes with that. I never had that. And I, I, I was a, a I was a columnist for maybe a decade. Yeah. But my columns always veered more into like book reviews or essays. Um, not that I didn't have my opinions, but, you know, she she very quickly developed a very strong following for her columns sure. and still yeah. does. It's been... She had a voice that was clear, you know. Yeah. And and, and left or right, this this sort of goes left or right. Yeah. Um, and, and she has that. And, and so because she gained and rightly gained so much uh, fame in Canada for, for her columns, I think people said, oh, you know, <laughs> then along came John yeah. uh, riding, riding her coattails. Uh, and, and I agree to that with that to the extent that I think she's, she's more well-known, uh, deservedly so. But chronologically, I actually got into the profession before she did. Interesting. Now, yeah. I, let's go, um, I hate to, I'm sounding like I'm grilling you, but, um, and I am, I guess. Um, the podcast, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, but it's, yeah. but I found it, I, you know, we'll, we'll get to other, the great thing about having a podcast that lasts a while is that we can go into depth yeah, in a variety sure. of areas. Um, that the national post, so you started your career at the national post, which was just starting why the national post. Oh, 
Well, because they hired me. Uh, no, no, but I mean, was that the reason? <laughs> I mean, but uh, look, I, I have to say, and I don't think I've ever said this publicly. I mean, I le- I I had already left Canada a long time before the National Post began, and from a distance, when I saw it, I thought, oh, you know, this conservative thing, you know, and 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 now, of course, I I have been writing the National Post among other things, and it and um, I'm just wondering. Um, did you, you know, the other national newspaper, which is the one I knew when I left, was the Globe and Mail, the only national newspaper in Canada at the time when I left, when I yeah. lived there. Um, uh, was it, it had nothing to do with politics or it was just a matter of an available job or what? So uh, I had been writing as a hobby, I guess, for the, the previous year or two. So after law school, I, I became a lawyer and I, evenings and weekends i'd sort of write these freelance articles about everything under the sun and i'd send them to a bunch of places and mm-hmm. one of the places i sent them to was this magazine which is now defunct called saturday night which uh-huh. ran out of toronto the editor was a guy named ken white yeah uh, who's now a successful book publisher who, ken white then became in 1998 the editor-in-chief the founding editor-in-chief of the newspaper the national post which conrad black had started and it was just part of the good luck that has gone with me my whole professional life, which is like this is the last broadsheet newspaper created in Canada. Yeah. Because it was like the brief interregnum um, uh, when there was like maybe a sort of a conservative journalistic flourishing in Canada. They wanted an alternative to the Toronto Star and the Globe and yeah. Mail. And it was still seen as possible as like, hey, maybe we can make money from broadsheet newspapers. Uh, and it was that little window of opportunity. They created the National Post. Uh, I got hired because Ken White knew of me through my freelance work, uh, and and that's how I started my career. So what, you know, I was kind of flipping. I said, "Why did I go to the National Post?" Because they hired me. There was this was also the period in Canadian arts and letters, which maybe it still exists, is that there was such an inferiority complex of Canada vis-a-vis the United States yeah. that the fact that I had an, an Ivy League degree mm-hmm. in Canada meant that like. It's like, oh, he has no journalistic experience. He's kind of a nerd, uh, and he doesn't interview well. But he went to Yale, so <laughs> like maybe we should hire. And that's kind of how I got the job. I mean, that and the fact that I think you know, I, I wrote some fairly well received articles on a freelance basis. But in in today's climate, I never would have got hired because when I started hiring people, I started hiring people based on proof of concept of like. Well, you know, do you have a blog that people read? Do you yeah, have social media uh, feeds? Like, show me stuff you've written and on on a ongoing basis that shows that you can come to work Monday and Friday, Monday to Friday, and produce journalism that people want to read. Part of it was 1998. You know, blogging and social media yeah. wasn't so much a thing, but. So, so people just got hired on the basis of like, well, this seems like a smart person who's written five yeah. or six articles for, you know, like the Canadian Journal of stuff no one really particularly likes to read. Mm-hmm. And no one gets hired on that basis anymore. So I, I was like one of the last cohort of journalists who got hired kind of just on the basis of my resume, um, oh. which didn't even have that much to do with journalism. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I know that having, uh, you know, obviously gotten my degrees in the United States and working in the United States to see that use uh, yeah. that Canadian preference. There was that guy who tried to, I forget his name now, I should know him, an academic who th- thought he could become prime minister, but he was a... Uh, uh, Michael uh, Ignatieff. Yeah, Michael Ignatieff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, he, well, Harvard. Um, and yeah, and it turns out the Liberal Party was very impressed with his Harvard resume, but voters not so much. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I say I, I met Michael Gnatchev a couple of years ago on Young Street in uh, a Canadian tire store. <laughs> uh, he's the nicest guy in the world. I mean, yeah. all these politicians, when you meet them... They have to are, be. There's, but, well, Stephen Harper is a little cranky, but <laughs> Michael Gnatchev, it's, it's, you know, after all the sort of slings and arrows of uh, politics you kind of like start to half believe a lot of the accusations yeah. made against, sure. oh, you know, Ignatieff is just this academic snob who, yeah. um, you know, just sort of like swanned into Canada from Harvard and wanted to be coronated. Yeah. But 90% of this is political propaganda. Sure. At the end of the day, you know, it felt kind of bad for Ignatieff. You know, he, he drank the Kool-Aid that all these liberals had poured into his glass. Yeah. And at the end of the day, he's just a very smart guy who's written some very good books who wasn't a particularly good politician. Yeah, well, he discovered that, but he's done he's done okay since then, so it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, the le, there's one thing I found when reading about you that did surprise me. Um, yeah, given uh, to some extent, given the writing and 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 given the direction of the of the place you write for most now, was that you were you involved in writing helping Justin Trudeau with his memoir? Yeah. So you want to go over that and tell me your opinion of Justin Trudeau? <laughs> uh, so this was 2014, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, Trudeau was on the cusp of, well, as we now know, we didn't know at the time, but as we now know, he was about to become uh, a multi-term prime minister. And his people came to me or came to my agent and said, like, we need a writer who can like stress test a lot of the stuff that uh, we want to put in the book, which is to say they, they weren't looking for somebody who would just act as a kind of scribe for, you know, every aphorism or mm-hmm. sunny promise that, uh, that, that came out of, of Justin's mouth. They wanted somebody who could push back and say, well, what, is, what does that mean exactly? Or, well, we could put that in the book, but I can tell you the conservatives are going to jump over all that because... You know, you've used the phrase root causes, or if you, like, I, I knew where the minefields were when it came to language. Um, and I also, I also had worked on several other successful books. Like, p- part of my professional life is I'm a ghostwriter, and, oh. and I help people. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's not the first or the last book of, of ghostwriting. Oh, interesting. Uh, and I got to say, um, Justin is incredibly charming and also a very smart guy so i think politics makes people dumber yeah and uh justin if you got to know him he's 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 a great athlete he's very charming he um he's very widely read so this is something i think we included in the book is that um pierre trudeau justin's dad was a very stereotypical um sort of intellectual father who was always like giving his kids things like, you know, I was going to say, it'd be hard for me to imagine being Pierre Trudeau's son um, and not being exposed. Like he would, he would, they had one TV in the house and it was in the basement. And like, I think they were allowed to watch like an hour of TV a week. It was, and then, you know, the kids would ask a question about geography and just, you know, Pierre would say, well, here's a book about, you know, by Herodotus. Why don't you, you read about <laughs> his travels in Asia Minor? Or like it was kind of um, a little over the top. But what I was impressed with Trudeau is that he, he actually wore his reading quite lightly. So, I mean, I, I think he did read writers like Herodotus, mm-hmm. like on his father's yeah. 
urging. But if you went to his study where we conducted some of the interviews, you know, he was a huge fan of um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Well, that and, shows great taste. Well, it does, but it also shows like he wasn't ashamed of his yeah. adolescent reading preoccupations. Like every 15-year-old boy read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and thought it was high literature, including me. Well, I, I, I think it's, still think it's high literature, so there you go. So, but, but, but he, he wasn't embarrassed about talking about that or Star Wars or um, uh, uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, yeah, or, that's you know, great. I, I, Song yeah. of Ice and Fire. As I so he was say. an intellectual snob, and 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 you know, you, yeah, it, it, which which Pierre Trudeau was. There's zero he doubt. Was. He was, but 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 in an age when you could get away with it. When it, oh, absolutely. When it was a bad. When it, when it helped him tremendously, and yep. uh, his yep. effete sense. I mean, I grew up in that era. I'm older than you, and I and Pierre Trudeau was prime minister during much of the time I was in my adolescence and later. And in fact, so, I. For what it's worth, I used to work next door to the prime minister's place when I was in college, and I used to see Justin in the lawn, because in the old days, you could just go up to the house and knock on the door, which we used to do all the time, and ask for Margaret. Um, and, oh. uh, and uh, oh, but wow. yeah, so it's weird for me to see him as prime minister now, because, yeah, the Hertzberg Institute of Astrophysics used to be right next to the prime minister's house, and I had a summer so job there. I never worked at the Hertzberg Institute of Astrophysics, but I did work at the McDonald's at the corner, uh, southwest corner of Atwater and St. Catherine. <laughs> where on at least one occasion, Pierre and Justin came in for a hamburger that I cooked. Oh, there uh, you go. I was 16 years old. 66 uh, degrees of separation again. This, is, this was uh, 1984. I was making $3.54 an hour as a fry cook at that McDonald's, which was kitty corner from the Montreal Forum, where mm -hmm. the Canadians then played, but no longer. Uh, and once in a blue moon, Pierre Trudeau would come in uh, and it was on this occasion that he came in with Justin, uh, and yeah, I was the fr I was one of the fry cooks that day. So, again, not Hertzberg Institute of Physics, but still an important Montreal institution. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. maybe yeah. maybe more. So, yeah, no, okay, <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I I, don't, I think the Hertzberg Institute moved to out west to to Vancouver Island afterwards, okay. but um, but it was yeah. So yeah. Uh, more than a decade apart but it's good to hear that about uh, Trudeau now so you think that the 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 image of Pierre Trudeau is kind of this jock uh, lucky gene kind of goof, goofy guy or at least non-intellectual is completely uh invented by politics yes yeah no I thought um well what's interesting I would say is politics creates its own truth mm -hmm. and that was a caricature and an incorrect caricature of Justin at the time a decade ago when he got into politics. And you think politics has made him dumber, like it does many people? It, but it makes everyone dumber. I mean, yeah. it made it made Stephen Harper dumber. Uh, you know, yeah. to, to the you know, so Justin Trudeau was elected Canadian Prime Minister because he was the opposite of Stephen Harper. Stephen yeah. Harper was was this sort of avuncular, cranky, like Justin was, you know. A 40 year old who acted 30 and harper was like a 50 year old who acted 70 and harper was cranky before he became prime minister and becoming prime minister just makes you crankier uh and um i think in in harper's case he had a naturally partisan defensive disposition you know i'd met harper 
several times before he became prime minister. And I saw, I, I even put this in the National Post column, is that this guy is too antisocial to become prime minister. He's like, yeah. you know, in our editorial meetings with him, he was just, I think he'd literally roll his eyes if he didn't like the question. Um, whereas Trudeau was all sort of like firm handshakes and hugs and um, steely-eyed eye contact and charisma. Kind of things you expect of a, of a, of a politician. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he had a natural, and he was very good and physically energetic when it came to the street level politics. No, I'm learning because I've come back to Canada and I can see um, what looks like more of a, an American tinge of this left right and, and whatever uh, is, a, is a guy, he's, you know, he seems to be trying to take on the mantle of the, of the cultural warrior, at least that I see in the States, that the right is, in the States, the right is using the culture wars as a, as a hook to try and, and attract, and they are, to attract what were some liberals. And uh, I see, I see him doing this somewhat of the same thing in Canada. Yeah. So this guy, his name's uh, Pierre Polyevra. I think mm -hmm. I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He leads what is called the conservative party in Canada, although the politics of Canada's conservative party are probably aligned more with, with the Democrats in the yeah. United States. Um, it is true that he's taken on some of the postures associated with the right-wing culture war in the United States. He made some noises about the World Economic Forum, yeah. some of the, frankly, conspiracy theories about the WEF. But in general, he sort of backed off from that stuff because that stuff really doesn't fly particularly well in mainstream Canadian politics. As with the primary system in the United States, you kind of have to go to the, it's, it's sort of, it's centrifugal yeah. at the beginning to yeah. kind of get mobilized followers. And then it's centripetal after you've mm -hmm. conquered that part of it, where you're trying to go back and get mainstream voters. Uh, in Canada, the media has just a very sensitive tripwire over anything that seems even remotely conservative. So you, you tend to get punished severely for any posture that's conservative. Also, I mean, to to be fair, Poilievre also was sort of full-throated in defense of this Ottawa convoy protests, which yeah, maybe yeah. some of your listeners have heard about, which really was a kind of populist, not quite anti-vaxxer, but like anti-vaccine mandate protest yeah. that took place mm -hmm. in Ottawa. And the politics of that were not particularly radical by U.S. conservative standards, but Canadians, um, I mean, they treated it as like, you know the invasion of Rome by the yeah, as an insurrection, which of course yeah. Prime oh no, they 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 thought it was like you know, the Bolshevik take takeover <laughs> of Saint Petersburg in 1917. Yeah. It, it, except they disapproved of it. Uh, yeah. It was a, a big moment, and I think that was sort of how Polyevra's image was was cemented, and maybe will always be cemented in the mind of a certain kind of progressive journalist or voter, I mean, which is fair enough, like he did put down stakes with the convoy protest. That said, if you look at the actual substance of his position and the substance of pretty much like any conservative Canadian po politician, it's, you know, none of them want to get rid of abortion. Um, things like, you know, the death penalty has been uh, prohibited in Canada for for many many years. And yeah, that's, I don't know, maybe, I, probably even when I left, I can't remember, but probably- It was, right. it was a Supreme Court decision. Probably about twenty years ago, not quite twenty years ago, but uh, you've got uh, single payer health care 
across Canada, and I and don't I, know a single. And he always speaks. They all have to speak in favor of that. And yeah. it, you know, so what kind of conservatism, at least in the American idiom, mm -hmm. the idea of a conservative who's fine with single payer health care, who's fine with no capital punishment, who's fine with essentially universal abortion access without any federally mandated, uh, you know, gestation limits. Mm -hmm. Again, he's a Democrat. He's a Democrat the, yeah. who who has adopted a few culture war postures. Well, on... you know, his quoting of his of Jordan Peterson is another thing. I guess I, I you know, sort of he seems to have sided with Jordan. Jordan Peterson has become the Emmanuel Goldstein of <laughs> Canadian progressive politics, and and like again, to be fair, especially in the most recent incarnation of Jordan Peterson, like he says some pretty provocative stuff. Oh, he does. I know, yeah. having you so know, we've been yeah. talked together, and we. Email, and he says things yep. that I just find sometimes but, patently ridiculous. But but you know it's sort of like you you now have progressives who define their demonology of mm -hmm. conservatives according to like how many times they've retweeted Jordan Peterson. Yeah, He's yeah. become like the currency of progressive outrage. Yeah. You know? Although he says, you know, there's a number of things, obviously, since I've talked to him, there's a number of things I strongly agree with as well and in, in, in that his concerns have been. So he has an outsized influence on both sides. Among yeah, I'm amazed. Among his detractors, he's become yeah. this odd sort of litmus test about where you stand on a dozen issues. It's, 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 well, let's let's talk about issues now. I want to move on to your writing. And, and I guess I do want to... You know, I was going to talk about the walrus, but I think I'll skip that. I want to, I want to, I want to talk about how you got involved in Quillette because that's how I know you best, yeah. uh, both as an editor and a writer. Um, and I, and then I want to talk about some of the recent stuff you've written, including the incredibly comprehensive uh, investigative journalism, which is, I don't know if it's the longest story that I've ever read in Quillette, but it certainly was one of the longer ones, 15,000 words, I think. It was long. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and, uh, yeah. Anyway, as, as someone who I I don't know if I'll ever say I get paid by the word in Quillette. I know I know I wouldn't been allowed to. That's why Dickens' that. novels were so long. Right? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Scribble, 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 yeah. scribble. I know Dickens yeah, not, was very. I'm, not, I'm absolutely not comparing myself to Dickens. I don't. No, no, I know, but it's exactly right. You got paid by the word. It's clear no, why. John K. does Krauss podcast compare self to Dickens. Like I do not <laughs> want that. <laughs> no, no, but I know. Uh, I I know that feeling, and I I'm aware of it when in writing for, for word. But anyway, um. How did how did the, how did you um, get involved with Quillette and 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 I, I I you know and Quillette is another interesting you know people often see Quillette and boy it's another lightning rod like it's suddenly I'm a I'm a right wing whatever because I write for Quillette and 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 how did you get involved? So I you know, I've always been a, a gadfly in journalism. So when I was at the National Post, which was and remains to some extent a conservative publication. I was sort of like the token liberal on the editorial board, uh, and especially when it came, like climate change was an issue that I really spoke out on. Um, you know, this was, say, the 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 two thousands, maybe the very early two thousand and tens when I was at the National Post, and there were a lot of conservatives who were like, "Oh, global warming is a myth. It's all sunspots. Yeah. Uh, it's natural. You know, anthropogenic global warming is made up. It's you know." Al Gore convinced Kofi Annan that this was an issue. It's like, and I and I said, no, no, that's that's nonsense. Yeah, and the scientific background for you was important. It was. Uh, 
although there are plenty of scientists who spout nonsense and plenty of non-scientists who spout truth. So yeah, I, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. want to create a But at least being skeptical and, and worrying about evidence, which is all that really matters to me. I mean, I was reading... I'm not a climatologist. I'm not an oceanographer. You know, I'm not a solar scientist. But I know enough about science and engineering and math that I'm able to read peer review papers in all of these fields and at least understand what their conclusions are, what their methodology is, because, again, you know, I, I spent years studying science and it gives you a certain kind of vocabulary. And I remember I'd be in editorial board meetings with conservatives and say, like, are you really claiming, like, there's this conspiracy among, you know, several different academic fields, which includes the editors of all these peer-reviewed journals uh, and, you know, chairs of department of, of all these different fields, because global warming is not one scientific field. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, it, it crosses over to, you know, half a dozen different fields, all of which, you know, uh, you know, observation of, of earth phenomena and thermodynamics and, and all these, these sort of things. Uh, and and it, it seemed like crazy to me that says, no, 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 the whole thing's a hoax. And, and so I kind of became estranged from, from mainstream conservatism on that basis. But I'm kind of like, to be fair, I'm sort of made my whole career becoming estranged from things because then <laughs> it's I, not so bad. <laughs> no, because then I went to the walrus, which you mentioned briefly, and the walrus is a kind of like paradigmatic um, Canadian progressive bien pensant, left of center, very worthy monthly mm -hmm. magazine, you know, a lot of stuff about, um, you know, feminism that publishes poetry uh, a lot of like activists get published there and and the writing you know just to be fair the the writing is good it's it's fact checked it's still around it's the mm -hmm. walrus.ca if anybody wants to read the material and i'm proud a lot of, a lot i became the editor and chief for a brief period in 2016 uh part of 2000 uh, like maybe almost 2 years and i mean at the time i thought oh well this is great i've become estranged from, from conservatism but now, like, now I've found my place in the world. Uh, but then, you know, in keeping with my personality, I very quickly took note of the hypocrisies and pieties that characterize left-wing journalism Canada. Yeah. Uh, and, and the blind spots. And uh, there was friction there, too. Uh, yeah. and, you know, and a lot of that was my fault, because I think to be the editor-in-chief of that kind of, like, establishment toronto left wing um a lot of the money comes from charity and it you know it's the same kind of funding sources as you'd get from like the opera and the symphony yeah. you have to exhibit a certain kind of um like forbearance when it comes to like a lot of the humbug surrounding canadian left leftism and i understood that going into the job but I, it wasn't in my personality to to stick with that and uh, and and I, I left in frustration because it wasn't just the editorial policies. It just the job wasn't right for me in terms of my personality. Um, yeah. And yeah. I, I think I think both my supporters and detractors would would acknowledge <laughs> that that's true. And uh, and for a couple of months after the walrus, I thought, well, I guess I'll just be like this ghostwriter who, I don't know, occasionally writes on social media and maybe contributes. I started contributing to the Atlantic and the New Republic mm -hmm. and. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just like doing freelance and paying the bills with ghostwriting. Uh, and then I started reading Quillette. And Quillette was like, wow, this is a publication that maybe even I cannot 
become estranged from because I <laughs> like it just seems to be very sensible and based in science and um, was like equally dismissive of of left and right. Yeah. So the legend people don't realize. Well, so what's interesting about Quillette is Quillette is not a conservative publication. Yeah. Um, and and we established that definitively during the pandemic because we stood foursquare behind vaccination and the science mm -hmm. of vaccination and the science of public health. And we actually lost writers and lost readers because, you know, we we refused to um, you know, write about the giant hoax that is uh, the the COVID pandemic, yeah. um, and, and my boss Claire Lehman, who's based in Australia, uh, took the lion's share of abuse because Australia, I mean Australia had a, a kind of unique relationship mm -hmm. with COVID because it's an island, and so yeah. things things went up and down there. The, the oscillation amplitude was was much higher, and as a result, when they hit difficult patches with COVID, their public health measures were, were more stringent than you saw, for instance, in North America typically. Yeah. So, you know, you'd get these right-wing cultural commentators saying, oh, you know, uh, Australia has set up a system of concentration camps for yeah. people who are suffering from COVID. The whole, it was all BS. But because Claire did not take the bait and, you know, refused and rightly refused to give oxygen to all this conspiracism, you had a lot of hardcore conservatives who, who followed Brett Weinstein down the rabbit hole on this issue. Yeah. And uh, and there was a period, and I think the period to some extent continues now, that most of the trolls that I attract on social media, maybe not most, but at least half, are, are, are conservatives who, like, I'll tweet something about um, Canada Day, which we mm -hmm. just observed here, and it's like, uh, you know, oh, are you sorry that Canada Day isn't a holiday where you throw people to, into concentration camps or whatever? Like, it's just, and, and these are, again, these are conservatives. And and sometimes I have to look carefully and say, okay, well, is this a left-wing person who's upset about my views on issue X or is it a right-wing version? And because there's a rough balance between those two, I know I'm doing my job because I'm making everyone angry. Yeah, that's uh, well. If yeah. you can do that, you've done, yeah, you've done your job. Yeah. I just tweeted about Canada yesterday. I was intrigued to see if I'd be told... Because when I moved here, I was shocked. It was right at the time of all of this incredible reaction about the 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 the, the residential schools and, right. and and where I moved into PI. I'd moved to get partly to get away from the culture wars and and the first thing I'd happened when I was here was that the statue of John A. Macdonald was removed from downtown. in Charlottetown. And the, and I wrote about it for the Wall Street Journal. Um, yeah. And I was just shocked and dismayed. But um, but I was surprised this time I didn't get any as far as uh, no, no, no. Uh, this is the first Canada, Canada Day since uh, 2019 that hasn't been accompanied by a social panic. Well, social panic is too strong a word by um, an obsessive focus over masks, mm -hmm. national shame about like, you know, how can you celebrate a genocide state yeah. or some combination of their like public health and national self-recrimination. Mm -hmm. Like in my neighborhood, people were actually able to like do fireworks and have barbecues and picnics and not get hectored about how they were failing at public mm -hmm. health or failing at the job of reconciliation in regard to indigenous communities. Like 
It was I actually was, just like a normal Canada Day. Yeah, I was shocked. It was just like a normal. I was really, you know, it was really great this year to see that. I mean, yeah. not that I'm. A, I still don't carry flags. I've never been a flag carrier. No, I mean that's the thing about Canada Day. It's like I'm kind of typical. Like when I grew up, celebrating, you know, July Fourth, Fourth of July in the United States. Like I was always like the sneering Canadian is like, oh. You know, look at those silly Americans. Patriotism yeah. is the yeah. opiate of, of their masses, and yeah. and and Canadians always prided themselves on being muted in their yeah. uh, love of, of Canada. But then the kind of overboard self-flagellation that you saw among progressives in Canada in recent years has actually, as these things often happen, you know, history works in yeah. force and counterforce, uh, has has sort of awakened this call it American-style, more full-throated, patriotic uh, spirit that you now see with, like, people going around with flags and... Uh, it's, I, I kind of like it, to be honest. I mean, Canada's an amazing country. Uh, you know, <laughs> historically, we've, like all countries, we've done some, some bad things, and I think progressives have a point that we need to take frank stock of it, especially in regard to Indigenous people. Uh, although we went like totally overboard, there was a movement, and you still see it with like Canadian progressives insisting that Canada's government has to apologize for slavery. Yeah. Even though slavery was outlawed by the British decades before Canada came into existence. But there's all these like esoteric arguments. It's like, yeah, but you know, Canada was formed by people who were the yeah. sons and daughters of people who profited from. It's like, okay, I get it. Um, you know, none of us, six degrees of separation from sin, yeah. none of none of us are yeah. without sin, but like the desperate, desperately felt need to piggyback on American obsessions with like the 1619 project and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, well, you know, this is a good segue because I, I was thinking of what of articles of yours to, to focus on and I picked three or four, but the first, the first, and there's several articles, but the first, subject that we may as well talk about is is this mass grave thing because what what intrigues me you know i always and if it isn't clear i try and connect science and other things periodically in this in the in the podcast because i think it's an essential part of public policy as well as culture and by the way i will although it's self-serving to say this i will say the reason i wrote my um physics of climate change was specifically for conservatives because i found that conservatives would refuse to listen to the science because they didn't want to hear the policy recommendations that they sure. should stop driving their cars. So I said, let's, and it was a friend of mine who's a libertarian, well known, it was actually Penn Gillette, who's a magician. And he, he basically said, I don't want to hear, I want to hear the, I just want to hear the science so I can make my own decision. So I decided to write a book with, with no policy recommendations, just on the science of climate change, hoping that it would be more receptive to conservatives who could say, okay, I've read the science, but I still don't want to do these policies. Yeah. So anyway, that, but it was interesting how that people turn their mind off or switch off if they feel that the science is going to, or that a, the discussion is going to require then policy recommendations that they disagree with. They'd rather not even discuss the science or think of it as a hoax. So 
That's why I Segway. wrote that particular book. And, and Segway, you just name dropped a magician. Is that Penn, the Las Vegas? Yeah, Pen? yeah, Penn, Penn, and, and and Teller. Yeah, they're friend, friend. Yeah, both friends. So how how are, how are you with getting tickets? Because I'm going to Vegas in a couple. I months. will get you. Uh, I will get you. In fact, not just tickets. I'll get you special seats and okay. backstage. Okay. So I knew it was the right decision to do this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. And at the end of this, I may do a magic trick or two for you because I I I, I like magic. And so <laughs> okay. I I I, I probably I, I probably will. In fact, I have some in my pocket right now but um, oh boy it's, it's almost like this was set up like, yeah with almost it is and i will say yeah, yeah. to my great pride although i did very little but if you watch if you go look and look for the scientist deck of cards it was a, a, a one of their magic tricks that i helped them with but anyway um okay uh, but but yeah but pen is an amazing man and i've we've had a podcast and a very totally self-educated but one of the most widely read people i know but he is a libertarian and he doesn't like to be told what to do and and he said, you know, basically he said, this is the book I've always wanted, which is, and it was a factor for me. It was right at the beginning of the pandemic when I had a lot of time in my hands. And um, and I said, let me just write a book showing the science. Hey, this is just the science. You can decide to, to do with it what you want. It's just, this is just science. There's nothing. Anyway, uh, so that, but your, your arguments uh, reminded me of that. And I, I and I, I kind of hope it'll have some legit longevity in that regard, at least be more, I actually, we actually sent it to every member of Congress, um, hoping that some of the conservative members of Congress, who didn't see this as a as a, as an advocacy book, right. might. Um, and actually, one of their legislative age didn't get of uh, our Republican legislative age actually didn't get touched with me. It didn't have the obviously impact I'd like. But now, anyway, getting back to you and not me, um, if it's possible, um, <laughs> uh, the the. Um, uh, and then we will do a magic trick, I promise. But, uh, okay. but um, the uh, let's talk about the reason I want to talk about uh, the hot button topic of of the, these of, of of mass graves is I view this as one example. When I talk about what got me into public policy discussions, is that you know you should all I I have this quaint notion that public policy should be based on empirical evidence, and also. Yeah should be testable. So if it doesn't work, you change your mind, you know, the kind of things a scientist would do. And and fact versus faith, I've kind of been a well-known, supposedly atheist. And part of the re reason is I, I think, you know, I don't like basing anything on faith, um, no matter what. I mean, it's okay to have a predisposition to something, but then you, you test it against empirical evidence. And as someone who came in to Canada, right in what seemed to be the height of this uh, amazing self-flagellation over over the 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 schools um and i've uh, and i should tell you i studied canadian history at, for a while before going physics so i have a yeah so it hit me as well um but this fact that if you ask most people on the street i think most people on the street would say that mass graves have been discovered in canada and yet you wrote what your most a piece you wrote just the other day said in Canada asking for evidence now counts as denialism, which is something I see all the time in academia. Ask what's the evidence that academic academia is systemically racist or sexist? Just just tell me the evidence. That be, immediately makes you, you know, sexist or racist. And here um, you talk about the possibility that asking for evidence may become illegal. Oh, I doubt it I hope it won't be, but why don't you why don't you elaborate on that? So first I will say I was hesitant to, to choose that as a headline because for those you know i wrote a whole book about conspiracy theories yeah uh 
about a decade ago. It was it was called Among the Truthers, and mm -hmm. anybody who's familiar with conspiracist subcultures will know that a very common trope among hard-boiled conspiracy theorists is, "Hey, I'm just asking questions. I'm just looking for evidence." Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. did did planes hit that. the World Trade Center, and yeah. did you know the fuel inside the planes cause the destruction, or was it controlled demolition? You know, I'm open-minded. I just want to see evidence. And then you say, well, look, okay, let's let's look at the NIST report on on the collapse of WTC one and two. Like, how about that? It's like you know, Purdue University did this detailed finite element uh, simulation of. Did you look at that? It's like, yeah, but the people who wrote it are like, you know, it's led by the second nephew of Rockefeller, and like, and and then let, let's just ask questions about like whether they're in on it, and. So the trope of I'm just asking questions has a mm -hmm. long and not particularly um, salutary tradition in, in, the, in this field. And so just asking questions in a kind of dogmatic way where you're going toward a preconceived conclusion is, is not a good way to, yeah. to get you can, the truth. You can, you can hide it. You can clothe it in the, in yeah. the, yeah. the seeming sense of science. And I see right. it in... A, you know, aliens, I, you know, I, I get it everywhere. Climate change, aliens. Questions. Yeah, right. Yeah. So uh, I think just to lay out the the basis on the the residential school graves thing is that for those who are outside Canada, and I presume that most of your, your listeners are outside Canada, uh, although who now, you know, maybe the white hot star power of Jonathan Kay will, will draw in yeah. millions of Canadians. <laughs> so who knows? I doubt it. But Canada, as maybe even people outside Canada know, has this, um, this, in many ways, shameful history in regard to Indigenous peoples. European people came, uh, you know, really starting in the 17th century, and then you know quickly dwarfed the Indigenous population. We made treaties with Indigenous people. In many cases, those treaties were broken. Um, all sorts of diseases were spread. As more Europeans came, the balance of power shifted against indigenous people. The construction of the railroad across Canada meant that people just had less contact with indigenous communities in the interior with whom they often were, you know, rubbed elbows with when it was difficult to get across the country. Now you could take the train and then you could fly and many indigenous communities kind of became forgotten. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the 19th century and continuing on and well into the 20th century, there was a, uh, a blueprint, an educational blueprint, which was championed, I should say, by, by many progressives, as we would now call them, including yeah. Pierre Trudeau um, and Jean Chrétien, uh, who was a longtime liberal prime minister late in the 20th century, where indigenous peoples were going to be benefited and, and integrated into the Canadian economy and educational system. They were going to be taught English and French, taught valuable vocational skills. However, uh, it was also was the case that that many of these schools were left to the supervision of uh, priests, nuns, ministers, mm -hmm. without adequate supervision. Some of them, as you can imagine, were cruel. Uh, some of them, even if they weren't cruel, were negligent. The thousands of children who were in after 1920 were in many cases forced to go to these schools. Uh, there was corporal punishment. Uh, in many cases, they were punished with. Uh, sadistic punishments in some cases not all cases if they spoke their indigenous languages they were stripped of their culture 
and all of this, rightly, was made the subject of national uh, investigation. There was uh, Truth, Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was struck and delivered an authoritative report uh, which which detailed all this and and actually made an accounting of the there was at least three thousand and it's probably more like four or five six thousand or seven thousand children students who enrolled in these uh, so-called residential schools uh, and were and, and died uh, typically as I said of tuberculosis but the death rate even in an age when when children tragically many of them did die of preventable diseases or now preventable, um, there was a higher proportion that died at residential schools. So all of this is fact. No one is no one is denying it. Um, and and this is a, a baseline for what happened in 2021. In 2021, additional allegations were put forward based on ground penetrating radar surveys, GPR radar, the GPR surveys that were done at first, uh, it was a former indigenous reserve, or so, so I should say, former residential school in Kamloops, British Columbia. And it was said that GPR data, this ground penetrating ra radar data, indicated the presence of 215 child graves that had not been known before. And it was indicated that, it was suggested that these were, were not just children who had died of tuberculosis, but perhaps children who had been murdered in cold blood. And that what we were dealing with was, wasn't just the, the neglect and racism that had already been documented for many years mm -hmm. in regard to residential schools and its legacy, but th this was something new. And it was something like out of a horror film where hundreds and perhaps thousands of children, because other GPR surveys were made in other parts of the country, were, were extinguished in cold blood. And to a lot of people, including me, took this at face value. However, this was two years ago, and as the months passed, it, it began to emerge that the only evidence for this was this GPR data. Mm. Now, anybody who's listening to this and maybe is in construction or excavation or, you know, archaeology, or in my case, you know, I've worked in geology and stuff like that, I just... I have some passing acquaintanceship with with GPR technology, and is very limited what it can determine. What you typically have to do is you get readings through GPR. It, it shows you things like soil dislocations, like well, you know, the density of soil is greater here, and then there's mm -hmm. you have a, a disruption, and then you have another patch, and then another disruption, and then you have to dig up the earth to see what's actually there. Yeah. GPR survey data can show you the best place to dig to do further invasive investigations and it is used for among other applications it's used to find like pipes and old irrigation ditches and tree roots and it's also used to find old cemeteries because typically mm -hmm. you know graves are, are spaced at, at regular intervals and this gpr data that was announced in 2021 in kamloops and these other reserves was said to be consistent with the presence of 215 graves that had been secretly dug and, and, and children thrown into them, but there hadn't been any follow-up investigation. And it, it now appears that these claims are kind of dubious because in, in all that time, no human remains have been found. 
uh, have, no... have have let me ask I mean, that's I re, you know I've I've gotten that out of your piece and 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 reading but what I don't know is has ex, as has excavation happened have, has it, has people deliberately not wanted to disturb that sacred ground or has people try I mean the natural thing to do yeah. would be to dig it's like a Right. A forensic thing. If you're looking for a murder, usually you dig up the, you try and find the body. So, so this is the thing. So it said, t to my knowledge, there hasn't been any system systematic effort to investigate it, which is odd for a few reasons because it's been claimed, well, this is, you know, this is sacred ground, so we can't disrupt it. To which my response is, wait a sec, some white guy, <laughs> it's alleged, took a dead child and threw it into the ground to cover up evidence of his crime and that's sacred ground? Yeah, yeah. If, if that allegation is correct, this is the very opposite of sacred ground. This is a crime site. And by the way, that white guy who allegedly did this, he could still be walking the earth because uh, some of these schools operated well, you know, well into the Cold War period. It's not impossible that some of these people could be alive and to the extent we're taking it seriously, like this is an actual should be you know, crime site punishment. it should be so, well oh, you want to dig up Public old account. bones and and re-traumatize the survivors it's like well if these were claimed white students who were you know if, if it was said that there are 215 white kids who are buried in the local provincial provincial park they i mean you would have yellow tape and shovels and people in hazmat suits and provincial investigators there like within 24 hours not not just that it, generally in well to make in crimes people generally like to get closure by finding out if their relative who is missing it was you know was that is that yeah and in this case it's kind of the opposite where again it's it's all very hazily done it's like well you know I'll give you one example it's um a united nations body it's either under the auspices of the United Nations or the International uh, Criminal Court in The Hague. Basically, people with expertise in analyzing evidence like this in places like Srebrenica uh, or Rwanda, for instance, uh, their services have been made available. And the last I heard of this in early 2023 is their services were rejected on the basis, at least temporarily, on the basis that they weren't informed enough about like indigenous cultural practices and there wouldn't be enough leadership being exerted by local indigenous tribes the whole thing seems very kind of dodgy to me i want to emphasize that it is absolutely not out of the question that that bodies will be found at one or more of these mm -hmm. sites mm -hmm. canada like pretty much every country on earth is full of unmarked cemeteries yeah. the cemeteries that used to be marked but you know, in the early 20th century, it wasn't uncommon, you know, a pauper's grave would be marked, if at all, with like a small wooden cross that would succumb mm -hmm. to the elements after a couple of months. And then it becomes an unmarked grave. It is, yeah. you know, this, I think, uh, Kamloops Residential School, I think there was a church and um, I think there was, there's cemeteries at many of these places because any place you have a church, you, you often have a cemetery. If, if you tore up the ground in all of these places, I'm sure you would find a few bodies. Mm -hmm. The idea that these are bodies that, A, were, were buried secretly in unmarked graves to begin with, and that the bodies of children and that they're murdered children, it's like four different logical steps you're taking. Yeah. But all of that was taken on faith by the Canadian media. 
in May, late May and early June of 2021 on the basis that, well, we have this GPR data, this ground penetrating radar data, and it was sort of imagined in the public mind that this like radar, you could like see little skeletons or you could see caskets or whatnot, which, which GPR data shows nothing of the kind. It, show, it shows soil dislocations, which are typically used as, as areas to, to further mm -hmm. investigate through invasive means. Um, this was all taken at, at, at face value in part because Canadians were assured that the idea of these children being murdered and buried in these spots accorded with the sort of mystical teachings of indigenous knowledge keepers. And very few journalists wanted to be seen as interrogating the epistemology of indigenous knowledge keepers. I mean, what, what do knowledge keepers keep? They keep knowledge. Well, if it's knowledge, then that's good enough for us. Yeah, so. yeah, and then there you go. I mean, that's part of my we can we can that's another hot button issue, but I mean, I've written about this New Zealand of course has gone to the extreme of trying to teach quote indigenous knowledge along ways of knowing alongside real science and science classes. And and I'll I've gone on record and I'll say it every time. There's no such thing as knowledge except empirical knowledge. There's, There's no yeah. revelation. The revelation isn't knowledge, never has been, never will be. And it comes full circle to some extent into a kind of right-wing, call it right-wing, Christian creationism, where things are known kind of because it is known Khaleesi, um, yeah. you know, uh, and it's it's anti-scientific, but in the Canadian context, it very much became a political phenomenon because what happens was this, all, all this, what I'm describing here was sort of compressed into a kind of social panic that, that played out in the space of a couple of weeks in the late spring of 2021, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, went went in very deep on it and immediately lowered Canadian flags on public buildings and lowered them for five months, yeah. uh, which was, inc I mean... I was more, wondering when I first moved here, which was in that time, why yeah, all the flags were lowered. I didn't More than five know. months. And, yeah. and it became this kind of mortifying spectacle because... He was asked, "Well, it's been five months. Like, when are the when are the flags going back up?" And he said something to the effect of, "Well, like, when Indigenous people tell me that they can go back, but when when are Indigenous people going to say, yeah. you know, when is some duly designated mm -hmm. uh, representative of hundreds of thousands of people, to the extent any such person could present themselves, say, okay, it's it's been three and a half months. That's exactly enough time. Yeah. Now they can go. So then, on some, I think it was Remembrance Day." Um, the whole thing was was kind of mortifying and pretextual. Um, the, the flags went back up, but from that moment, Justin Trudeau uh, did a photo op. He went down on one knee mm -hmm. at another First Nation, not Kamloops, and the Liberals. It was also an election year, so the Liberals campaigned hard on being kind of the penitents, penitents in chief of Canada. Mm -hmm. And oh, there's all this important work we have to do with reconciliation and making amends and. You know, who wants to elect the, those bad old racists uh, into power when what's really needed is, is people who know how to, uh, to whip themselves into to a good uh, frenzy of self-recrimination, which, you know, the liberals under Trudeau in particular prove themselves quite adept at. Uh, academics went in a hard on it. Uh, you know, this proves we need to decolonize the campus. Mm -hmm. And journalists went in hard on it, mm -hmm. uh, including conservative journalists. 
And then as the months passed, and it was kind of like, oh, wait, you know, it's been six months, it's been 12 months, it's been 18 months, it's been 24 months, we haven't actually found any bodies or human remains. No one really had any interest in revisiting this issue because if you were a journalist, it often meant you then had to like go back and delete about a dozen tweets yeah. and maybe correct half a dozen stories you've written about all this, treating all this as fact. Politicians, you know, they'd all, not all of them got down on one knee, but they'd all said things that reflected a credulous attitude toward this and no one wants to correct the record. So instead what you had is you had now journalists and politicians, they talk about 215 potential graves, 215 plausible graves, 215 suspected graves. Around a year ago, you started seeing these words creep into journalism where journalists and politicians was, it would take stock of the fact like, okay, we admit it, we don't actually know the graves are there, which by the way, hadn't been the case for the most part when the story was first reported. So they were kind of like going forward, started to kind of cover off the fact that no one had actually seen any real evidence that these graves were there. But there was this sort of gentleman's agreement among Canadian pundits and politicians that we're just kind of kind of take a mulligan on all that stuff we said in mid-2021. We're not going to revisit that because everyone went in hard on that. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, if... Other people aren't going to admit they they were too credulous. I'm not going to admit it yeah. because so it's sort of like like kind of a herd mentality. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, it is. It is, and we'll we'll just agree to slowly. But there's back no other off. issue like that. It's completely unique. Like I don't know any other issue in Canadian journalism where it's just there's this kind of tacit agreement that we kind of went nuts on the story, and but the Canadian press made it the story of the year for 2021. And in their announcement of it being the story of the year, they, they described them as unmarked graves. Like, yeah. Canadian reporters had not yet gone into the ass-covering habit of saying, you know, plausible graves or potential graves. So, you, you know, you could go online, and these stories are still there, uncorrected. New York Times. New York Times wrote at yeah. least two stories. Yeah, the, I, the, I mean, I, the, well, I want to go, I want to end this eventually when we get there, about talking about what we can do. And, and journalism, the idea of not, of not, saying we're wrong, which is, I think this, uh, my new book says, I don't know, is the key, most important three words in science. Yeah. It should be the most important three words in journalism and in politics. And parenting. Most and parenting, parenting, parenting and teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I've always said that parents and teachers should be more and more willing to say, I don't know, because it's an invitation to discover. It's not just a negative thing. It's an invitation. Let's try and figure this out. But, but yeah, no, I think it tends to be more the norm than the exception. I mean, you point... It, I'll give another example. I don't want to go into it a lot uh, because I, I had, uh, I remember having Matt Ridley on the podcast and he wrote a book about um, called, I think it was called virus or something or viral. Uh, anyway, it was about, uh, you know, with the pandemic, the source, you know, the key question was it, was it, did it come from a lab in China? And it's a fascinating subject where we still don't know the answer to tell you yep. the truth, but the press jumped right as did many outlets, but the press and to some extent, the scientific community, jumped on it right away and said no no it we have it cannot be it 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 is you know because that's a dangerous political statement even though i mean there were some right wing people who were saying it's it was you know bioweapons and they intended it but the the whole point of this was maybe it was an accident and um no we can't have that discussion right now because that that is politically unacceptable and then it be, and and so all the media just said this is there's no no substance to this 
um, conspiracy theory. And of course, now we, we you know, it, we don't know. And the media is sort of bad. Begin, you begin to see even in the media that were totally um, refused to discuss it, that now are at least willing to say, um, you know, especially as scientific reports come out saying we don't know. Um, but it's an you see that same backing off. It's not it's as extreme. Same, same embarrassing spectacle where uh, I remember there was a letter, I think it, it appeared either in Science or Nature, uh, you know, signed off by multiple luminaries. Yeah. Saying, you know, it's no one should talk about how this could be. Uh, COVID came out of a, a Chinese lab, and and then the Biden administration itself, Democratic administration, uh, I forget maybe it was a year ago or eighteen months ago, basically openly said we're going to investigate whether this was yeah, a Chinese lab. Finally. And and I'll be honest, this has never been a big issue for me. Like yeah. I think it's entirely possible that this was yeah. an inadvertent leak from uh, a lab in China. Um, I have no idea, and, and in, it's never been a strong issue for me. But I've always thought it was nuts that you weren't allowed to talk about. That. Well, what's what's interesting? Yeah, exactly. It's nuts that you weren't allowed to talk to it. Just like yeah. it's nuts that you can't ask the question: Are these graves? Yeah. Anytime you can't ask a question or. It's yeah. nuts because that's the antithesis of science, but it should be but the antithesis. We have to be careful because a... sometimes it is nuts. I mean, to say was the new was the moon landing a hoax? Well, it's uh, all right to ask the question uh, it, because then I can yeah. prove why you're nuts. To I mean, I can then argue and point out all all the fallacies. I, I think that's why you know Christopher Hitchens, my old friend, used to argue defend these Holocaust deniers because you know his point was that they should have the right to prove that they're complete idiots uh, and uh, yeah no it's true um and michael Shermer, who it would it would shock me if michael Shermer hadn't been on this podcast uh, oh he hasn't as a matter of fact but oh let's see he should be the next <laughs> guest he should be here instead of me no but no no wrote, no no anyway he wrote a whole book that came out in 2000 i think about holocaust deniers yeah and yeah he, he interviewed them and he took them i mean he certainly didn't take their their ideas seriously. The idea is garbage, but um, he took them seriously as a called a pathological phenomenon in terms of the world of ideas. Like, how do you how do you generate such garbage ideas? Because these people aren't necessarily like stupid. They're just like there's something wrong with the way. Yeah, they see and the sometimes they're yeah. malicious. But I, I guess I, I'm an extremist in that regard. I, I I think there's no question that we should that is unaskable, no matter how ridiculous or offensive. And, yeah. um, and, and we have the right to ignore it. We have the right to debate it. Um, and all of the, you know, how we respond to it is up to us, but, but, um, yeah. So, so you know, right. So I was very is, suspicious. Is I thought, okay, these are, you know, the, cause the, with the lab leak and then I actually read Matt Ridley's book, which was an interesting book because it was scientific. They didn't take an ad, they didn't advocate, but at the end of the book, it was pretty clear that there were a lot of open questions and in particular, by the way, the person who organized that um, letter in science was one of the people who worked with the lab in, in, in oh. Wuhan. And, and, you know, so you begin to wonder about self-interest there. It's a, it, in, in any case. Uh, so I, I think the, the exam, the reason I brought this up, partly because it is a hot button issue in Canada, at least, um, and, and may raise ire of people is to me, it's one of these cases of, if you can't ask the question because it's so offensive to people, there's some problem. And you're roughly right. We don't know. People, no one knows if these are, they, you know, what, even if they are graves, whether they're 
hidden graves, or as you point out, just grave, uh, grave, grave site. Like to close was... the loop on this, um, the effect of all this, this, this effort to pretend that we know things that we don't actually know, mm-hmm. culminating, and this was the subject of my article, there is now a campaign afoot among some liberal politicians and some academics to to refer to anybody like you and me who takes frank stock of all these things to label us as denialists. Yeah, the sure. The idea that 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 pointing out the fact that human remains haven't been found is is somehow morally tantamount to Holocaust denial because that's that's the plain intention of using that word. Even it's, they, it's a it's a continent. Yeah, it's it's like the saying. Well, you know, you're like um, Ernst Zundel or or, or something. Well, it's become um, it's it's sort of a an extension of the of the critical race theory stuff we're seeing in the states, where if you question it, you're suddenly automatically a racist, right? And so, it, it, you know, it's the old thing about witches, right? If you if, we, if you if you don't say you're not a witch, you're a witch, and if you say you're a witch, you're a witch. <laughs> yes, although I will say that if we start getting into critical race theory, that we're, we're gonna the sun's gonna come down. Or no, no, I'm not gonna. T- I'm gonna avoid that because <laughs> it's, it's not even worth um, in our discussion. Well, I, maybe. Anyway, it's a different discussion. Different um, discussion. Yeah. Uh, okay, I think we've we've. Um, I, I was going to say beat that dead horse, but, but that's probably in poor taste. But um, um, the the uh, I want to, as I say, my my intent is is fa- is sort of empirical evidence and fact and reason, which I think should be the one of my one of the reasons I do this podcast and, and our foundation does what we do and much of the writing I've done in my life is that. I think science and reason can are not just interesting and fascinating to learn about the universe, which I think more people should be excited about, but they can be useful in the rest of, yeah. of our human, you know, culture and 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 self governance. And so that's my deep belief and why why I promote this stuff. So that's one example. Uh, there's three. I should say there's three things I want to talk about. Just so that was one. I want to talk about another article about because I just had, I just did a podcast with Hakim. Alushehi, um, uh, and recorded it last week, an astrophysicist uh, talking about James Webb. And I noticed, you know, you had a piece actually a long time ago, um, well, last year, December last yeah. year, on what happens there and the danger, um, the dangers that come from trying to have frank discussions about issues that where scientists have become ideologues and a large part of the scientific community, especially in astronomy, have become ideologues, I would argue, and I've written about this, I think, in Quillette, among other places. Um, and then I, then I want to go to the, the, the McMaster masterpiece that you wrote, because I want to talk about academia. And, and, then at the, and then after that, I'd like to talk about what we can do, because I think a lot of this is, is a relationship of journalism and, and, and public policy. So in any case, I, I want to jump to 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 this. I don't want to spend a long time because I just did a whole podcast, but but you wrote a piece uh, early on, one of the earliest pieces I saw, which was, um, you know, around the time that New York Times wrote a, a, a reporter there, um, Michael Powell, did a great job um, yeah. writing about this. And uh, um, but a, an astrophysicist um, happens to be na- president of the National Society of Black Physicists. Uh, um, uh, Hakim Alushehi, uh, as he taught me how to pronounce his name, um, uh, um, is a, looked at this claim, which was a small group of of ideologically based. I, I can't help but say it. A, a, a astronomers had argued that the James Webb Space Telescope should not be named that because he was a homophobe and probably racist and anti-Semitic and whatever else. Because somehow in the 1950s that was the norm. I first learned about it 
to tell you the truth, I first saw a ridiculous piece in Scientific American, which unfortunately used to be a good scientific journal. I used to write for it, but it's now not. Um, the uh, uh, they wrote a piece saying it shouldn't be named uh, Hubble. It shouldn't be named Jibs Space Telescope because of that, and I automatically get my hair on my hand, head sticking out when I see mores of the uh, of this era being imposed on people in an earlier era. I thought it was just that. I didn't know the, de- the the claimed evidence, but where it lost any credibility to me was when I saw their supposed solution was to rename it the Harriet Tubman Space Telescope because Harriet yeah. Tubman in, in, in the Underground Railroad must have looked at the North Star at some point. And I thought, well, okay, this is just kind of push. Yeah, it's, it's obvious thin, that this is being yeah, driven by something other than the science. So, uh, so Hakim lo- was working at NASA and looked at this and came up to the conclusion there was no evidence for it. And he, he thought it would just end the debate, but he found exactly the opposite. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about it. So um, I remember being struck by that. And I think I, I, I put it in the article that Hakim Aluwehi, is that how you pronounce it? Alushehi. Alushehi. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. What was remarkable about Hakim Alushehi isn't Hayi. just anyway. I can't get it right. Hakim. Don't let's anyway. Both say, of us are probably mispronouncing it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Because this is this is painful. I I I got Pierre Poilievre's name <laughs> kind of right, but so let's <laughs> just say I'm one for two on that. Okay. But what he did, uh, I'm going to assume it's a he him. What he did was a stunning self-directed research project. Yeah, yeah, like, amazing, remarkable. He relied, he went after primary documents to discover the political views of James Webb and went, looked at government documents, looked as, you know, how representative was were his views. And just to be clear, homophobia was, was rife. Like yeah. if any person, even a progressive person from that era where Walk Among Us now like their views, you know, they'd be shocked that that gay marriage existed. Yeah, uh, yeah. In the same way, you know, we just celebrated Canada Day, and you know, you look at the founding fathers of of Canadian Confederation. I'm sure their views of Jews were like, yeah. I don't know if they were out and out anti-Semites, but it would shock me to. I'm you know, sure they to, were. <laughs> they probably were, but like yeah. you know, yeah, life okay. goes it was on. Just, like, yeah, it was just the, it was just the norm. That was the thing. Like the, yeah. you know, um, uh, you, you have to accept that the arrow of time goes oh, forward. I don't know when Benjamin Disraeli was. Uh, anyway, go on. But yeah, there was there was just a lot of anti-Semitism and a lot of it was, and there's still a lot of anti-Semitism. But but there it was sort of more. You could be a polite anti-Semite, and in the same way that it was just kind of assumed that among a lot of people, homosexuality was was either call it a sin or abnormal or a perversion or a mental disease. Unfortunately, this these misguided concepts were were prevalent. And um, this guy did this really stunning and thorough, and he's a good writer too. Uh, yeah. and he published it, if I remember correctly, he published it on Medium maybe? Like yeah, he Medium and it. a blog on Medium. Yeah. yeah, and he said, look, there's all this controversy about James Webb. Instead of relying on slogans, I'm going to go back and look at what he actually said and did. And he found that a lot of the things, including, I think, think like just the quotes wisdom, from him, he found that quotes, all the stuff that was attributed to James Webb was actually misattributed, and he could yeah. document it was attributed to other, actual other people. So, yeah. so it ended up on Wikipedia, like all this misinformation about Webb. 
which indicted and which like suggested he was even yeah. by the standards of his time to be a bigot yeah was literally made up it found its way to wikipedia and then yeah. people started to quote wikipedia yeah and then wikipedia being what it is like you know then you then you get citations to the yeah. misinformation that was itself based on the pre so or people would did. yeah the self the, people would quote claim to have read wikipedia right. never even read it and they became the the sources one 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 yes. astrophysicist in particular but anyway go on well one astrophysicist in particular um happens to be a black woman yeah. who has very much made a name for herself as being like the leading anti-racist in the field yeah. of physics, mm -hmm. which is fine. Like if you, you know, there's well, there's I'm racism. not sure if she's yeah. Anyway, go on. There's racism everywhere in society. Yeah. Like the, yeah. the progressives yeah. are wrong. It's like, you yeah. know, you'll find racism in in every academic field and every yeah, but not field. systemically. I would argue. Anyway, the the point is that racism is an ineradicable disease. Yeah, part of the human condition. And if you look hard enough. And sometimes you don't have to look that hard. You you will find it. So I, I I'm just saying this because if this this woman is just if you want to say I'm going to be the leading light of anti-racism in physics, that's fine. That's great. Just yeah. you know tell, tell us tell us if you find any. However, it, the, the story was complicated here because this guy who did this incredible forensic project, um, Hakim, he published a book sort of a, a biographical book about his own experience in physics around the same time that this woman, again, who had branded herself yeah. as kind of like, you know, the leading light of black, of, of, of anti-racism among black physicists. And it turns out like there had been this sort of like political struggle or contretemps that had gone on in the association of black physicists not all of which I understood, but like there well, was. Well, as far as I can tell, that's largely invented too, by the way, the, by, by, by the woman. I mean, as far as he, oh, okay. he wasn't okay, quite. But she claimed, Hakeem, he, he basically said he never knew about any okay. of that stuff. It was all new to him. She claims like he had done this bad stuff, but, he, yeah. but she, she didn't provide a lot of detail. And the difference so, was, by the way, he broke, grew up in, in, in Watts and New Orleans right. in a drug dealing family and had no. It's amazing his education came where it was. And. And, uh, and she grew up in sort of more, a more affluent. She's um, at least half Jewish, right? Yeah, half Jewish. Uh, yeah, which she and and turned out, by the way, I I, I wasn't going to go into the details, but I, you know, I read his whole book in preparation for the interview, and he he was craving. There were no books where he grew up. I mean, he was right. poverty in its extreme sense, and he and he eventually, you know, he found roots. That was one book, but he found the rise and fall of the Third Reich, and he started to read it, and it, and he didn't. And what he said is he didn't, he'd never heard of Adolf Hitler. And, and at the beginning, he thought, oh, this guy's a hero. Oh and it God. took him a while to, and he says that in there. And then, of course, he gets criticized for everybody saying, how dare you be a Hitler, a Hitler defender? And uh, uh, in any case, uh, it's, it's kind of, it, 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 it you know, because he made Al a joke about it, I think, the fact that Albert, he was so ignorant. Written what? by Albert Speer, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hitler's and, architect. And, and, and in any case, uh, um, but but as far as I can tell, uh, yeah. So anyway, go on. No, but so, so she was very privileged to say half Jewish, which to my mind yeah. makes it a half Shonda. Yeah. And uh, and I was just so impressed journalistically at all the research he had done. Yeah. And at the end of the day, what it turns out is James Webb, far from being like the dynamo of homophobia within you know the Mac McCarthy era Washington, uh, like hardly distinguished himself as a homophobe. You know, he, again, he was a creature of his age, but to the extent you're going to acknowledge the roots 
of, of NASA and of the exploration of space in any figure in Washington, like you're just, you're going to come across people like Webb and, 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 and if, not the... not just that he also discovered that Webb not only but worked incredibly hard against racism in in NASA and actually worked extreme so he, you know that's what that's what apparently hit came first because he assumed that Webb was a homophobe he assumed you know that what he'd read was right and but then when he started to investigate Webb he discovered that internally Webb had worked really hard against discrimination in another aspect of right. NASA and said that doesn't jibe why would a personality who was working so much because racism was prevalent sure. back then just as much sure. homophobia why would someone who'd fight that tie against that tide be so much to jump on this side and that's what caused his skepticism and caused him to begin to to do the journalistic but this is a, this is a true empirically driven mind yeah uh, and yeah. so it's great that he was on the podcast because he's he's quite fascinating mm -hmm. and for him to admit that he read the rise and decline of the mm -hmm. third reich and that you know he he sounds like he's very self-aware about like yeah because he, he yeah. how ignorant yeah. you know he was of this stuff back then but like on the other hand how many people ignorant or not are willing to like rise in the cloud of the third reich is, is not an easy read yeah yeah no, uh, yeah. yeah so i mean that's but guys people like that who are are autodidacts at least in some respects yeah. and are incredibly open-minded and let the evidence drive their beliefs instead of vice versa oh, they're rare birds like it's just it's it's but you very... think the, the reason i wanted to bring this up was not just to criticize or to but the the sat the reason is it's endemic of a, of what you know i'm trying to pick up bits of your of the stories you covered that reflect things that concern me about society one was so the indigenous thing that was again the media and politics sort of taking faith over social patterns. here i tend yeah, to cover social patterns yeah yeah That's and it. and here is someone who who finds empirical evidence and the scientific community should laud him and then what you find out is is you got to begin to worry about some factors the scientific community because instead i mean the whole point of science as i we, he and i discussed is scientists love in principle to find out they're wrong yeah because that's sure. what science is all about because it means science has progressed you know you want to you want to first of all prove your colleagues wrong when you go into work every day and you want to often find out you're wrong because it means hey there's whole new things to discover so you'd think the scientific community who would promulgated this this what turns out to be a myth would say wow this is amazing but instead they dug in harder which is the signal signature of a dogmatist and an ideologue yeah. and and so one uh, it, it's it, it just raises your antenna to be worried about when a, when the when a fraction of the scientific community will n react so strongly against it that not only do they disagree with it and refuse to accept it, which is again like we talked about climate change or 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 you know when people refuse to accept the evidence because they so strongly believe it, but then begin to attack the messenger, which is a really even a worse problem. Well, yeah, I mean. Part of this is careerism. If you're an administrator, it doesn't matter have to be in physics or, mm -hmm. or, or any other field, um, you can advance your reputation by saying, I discovered that X is racist and I will dedicate all my efforts to eradicating X. Yeah, by virtue signaling. Distance. In fact, you don't have to say you discovered. All you have to say is that social media has discovered it and, and now I will get ahead of the group by- but If somebody by... then comes and says, that's fantastic just so you know we checked it out and it turns out x isn't so bad 
if you're that administrator, and by the way, Lawrence, I would say if you or I were in that situation, we might come to the same conclusion. Do you really want then want to be the person at the the meeting of you know the university board of governors mm -hmm. or you know your your weekly brunch with the university president saying, hey, remember that long lecture I gave you about how we had to strip X's name off mm -hmm. all the institutions at the university? Yeah, it turns out I was wrong, and uh, let's just like put the kibosh on all that. Who wants to have that conversation? Well, it's even more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who wants to have the conversation? But it's actually, and and I think people of integrity and you should have that no, conversation. Oh, that's, oh, but so you're but so it's naive. worse. It's ridiculous. It's like saying, what, no, but I, I actually think having seen this, that it's a, it's a calculated decision. Let me let me see what what you know what the where where's my bread buttered? What what's the what's the percentage in just in 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 being unfair to person X versus the percentage in being in front on top in front of a social issue, Especially even if you know, even if you, and, and I see this Being happen in universities all the time, they knowingly are willing to throw people under their bus because there's no percentage in, in doing the opposite. Also, James Webb is dead. You can't yeah. libel the dead, which yeah. is it. That principle is as operative in the culture war as it is in and to show court. how bad it was, yeah, there were journals who are now unfortunately becoming woke who basically said when this first was promoted with, again, without doing any research, we, we will not, we'll use the ter word, the initials JWST oh, in our that. journal, that's, that's but we will not so. allow people to say the word James Webb. No, it's, but it's, yeah. this, it's, but and that's a like, word. Um, it's, it's sort of like don't say Voldemort. Yeah. Uh, like there, there's this idea that like certain cursed words like will summon the withering of crops and the <laughs> barrenness of women. Yeah. Like it, it really does revert to a kind of pre-modern form of thinking that words become magic spells. It's that medieval. It's you hit it's, the word. It's, it's really, it's medieval. It, it really it's is very medieval. disturbing. And, and it comes from people who say we should follow the evidence in every aspect of our lives, yeah. which is true. Uh, and they abide by that when it comes to, you know, when it's in there and vaccines and, and stuff that I agree with. Yeah. Um, but then it's like, again, they, they go back in time 400 years and they're thinking when it comes well, to. I don't want to be like we're casting stone because the point is we're all that way. It's we're all hardwired yeah. yeah. to want to believe. And it's really hard. And that one of the, you know, I, I promote science for a variety of reasons, but it is a good training yeah. to discover on how to react when you're wrong. It's well, and and it's and I you know so it happens all the time in science. It's really hard when you believe something to be true. You did that. that it isn't. You did that in your most recent article. So, in passing, you described how there are at least two methods of determining the existence of exoplanets, and uh, and and one is based on the interruption of light, based right. on when exoplanets travel in front uh, of a star. And the other is based on the the perturbations, orbital perturbations that take place due mm -hmm. in, in the star itself, due to the movement, the deflections based on yeah. the minute gravitational effect of the planet. And you, I forget which of those two methods, you admitted said plainly said, I didn't think this method would work, oh, and yeah, it did work, yeah. and it did yeah. work. So I yeah I yeah like that no. in fact yeah. I didn't believe either method would work so there you go oh okay wow so what am <laughs> I, I doing mean... on this podcast here <laughs> <laughs> no I was I just that's why you know I thought why are these you know I admire people who are willing to spend twenty years of their life out of fruitless effort that's what experimentalists often do 
And but I, you know, I said, well, that's it's just not going to. I can't see how you could, how you could measure a star moving at roughly. I mean, if you really want to detect Earth-like planets around our sun, you'd have to look at the motion of the sun at a speed that's not much faster than you walk. And it's amazing that, you, that people could do that. And I was shocked. And I'm, I, I'm never, I never cease to be in awe of the ability of experimentalists to exceed my wildest expectations about what's possible. And um, yeah, and I love But you know, I love it. I mean, right? I mean, because then it means you can do things you didn't think you'd do before. And anyway, it, it, it worries me and it's a worrisome about science. And, and then the last thing I want to I wanna cover was your, uh, I think, a masterpiece of, of, of um, investigative reporting about this McMaster this imaginary sex ring. You know, one of the earliest, uh, you may not know her, um, and her name was on the tip of my tongue a second ago, Elizabeth... Um, Oh my God! I was Elizabeth just Weiss. To... No, 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 not Elizabeth Weiss, who's a, a anthrop anthropologist too. I yeah. do know. Um, um, oh my God! I was just going to tell you, and now we're going. But one, an amazing psychologist who's been. It reminded me she was instrumental in these. You may remember these court cases of people beginning to be by theorists, by by therapists, beginning yeah, to have recovered memories. memories. Loftus? Elizabeth Loftus, Elizabeth Loftus. Loftus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah and, and Elizabeth Loftus. is a hero of mine is, and, and always has been, and she was one of our earliest podcasters. And Elizabeth Loftus plays, I'm not sure if I uh, name-checked her in my article, but she indirectly played an important role, which we can discuss, in the McMaster story. Well, I, that'd be great, because, it, uh, yeah, let's talk about that, because it reminded me of that, of this, of, of, of therapists giving these imagined memories, and this whole, there were people who were tried, and the people who lost their whole, here's their kids, and it was oh, all imagined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it was I, just an. I know, I know, from personal, um, anecdotal knowledge, a family that was broken up by an unsubstantiated, quote unquote, recovered memory of sexual abuse that was weaponized, and um, two completely innocent parents became estranged from a child. Yeah, and that, that's and, why. And, and and then the rest of the family had to essentially choose sides about who to believe because you can't it's the sort of thing you can't say well you know yeah. maybe there's truth like if you're saying oh you sexually abused your five-year-old you either believe it or you don't yeah and so and it destroyed the whole family it yeah yeah no and and elizabeth uh, that's why she is a hero because yeah. uh, you know a lot of people have done significant academic work and i know people i mean i like to think i have but it hasn't you know uh, as i like to say it has had no uh no uh no, she's um, a great scholar. Impact whatsoever on the you know, uh, right. on the uh, on building better toasters and or cars. And people tried to cancel her too. Yeah, yeah, and so she actually her work and and by appearing in these court cases, yeah, she got vilified because by the way she did a she did agree to be you know listen to the O.J. Simpson, you're you know right. she, her attitude was all you know let me just see what what this is and yeah you get vilified if you're if you're on the wrong side but she's a hero and and uh, i'm happy to mention her name many times but the Mad, the mcmaster your your story here reminded me of that a lot and so why don't you why don't you um give us a brief uh sure. tracy of, so, of what, what um, the story is about as you said it's a thirteen thousand word story uh, although i did subsequently on quillette publish a two thousand word piece that summarized the story yeah in fact it's a, it's a nice summary i was i looked and, at that and maybe not everybody's gonna read thirteen thousand words but if you google mcmaster and quillette you'll find both stories but uh, mcmaster university is a prestigious 
research university in um, Hamilton, Ontario, which is about uh, an hour and change west of Toronto. Uh, and the psychology department is, is quite well known there. Uh, it's technically referred to as PNB, which is psychology, neuroscience, and behavior. Uh, and it was rocked by scandal in 2020 when it was alleged that a professor there, uh, his name was Scott Water, uh, was sexually abusing graduate students, female graduate students. And then subsequently, it was alleged that there was a whole sex ring. The allegation was that this included his wife um, and included, even more oddly, the long-term girlfriend of the main complainant. So there was the allegation was that there was a whole conspiracy of people, both the main complainant and the main complainant's girlfriend were grad students in the psychology department. So all of the main players here are either grad students or professors. And then there were these these other, as it turned out, completely innocent professors who were dragged in, and uh, you know posters were would put were put up in certain parts of the campus, like if you see this professor, if you see this woman, you know, call security. The suggestion being that these were dangerous sex criminals. Everyone was suspended. Uh, these ominous warnings were sent out to the whole university community. You know, we have received unsettling reports of blah blah blah. Uh, it turned out all of the sex ring stuff was just absolutely complete fabricated nonsense. Uh, it's absolutely true that one of the professors, Scott Water, was having a consensual, I don't even want to call it an affair because it, that term isn't used. Uh, it's not even clear they had sex, but, but there was a sexual component to their relationship. Mm -hmm. It was, I should say, a very unwholesome type of thing. And uh, he was subsequently disciplined by the university, but not on the basis that it was any kind of sex ring, but on the basis that he had used his authority as a professor to purport to give mental health advice to this uh, grad student who herself was in the throes of depression and had a lot of other issues. She was cutting herself, and he had this kind of sexual relationship with her and was sort of as I said, purporting to give her mental health advice. The whole thing was very unseemly, but it had nothing to do with any kind of like sex ring. That All of that was a social panic. But it was a social panic that destroyed the reputations of about a half dozen scholars. They were thrown off campus. Their, uh, their offices were, were ransacked. Um, they were completely shamed in front of their, their peers. And the department itself fell into chaos because they all of the scholars represented a substantial fraction of the PNB department. And so there were just dozens of people whose their their thesis work had to be reassigned. Uh, it it affected the knock-on effects affected probably more than a hundred people. And what was interesting was a lot of these social panics get debunked. I should say there was a second main accuser who um who impressed me greatly because she the second accuser basically supported a lot of the things that the first accuser, who turned out to be a fabulist, had said. But the second accuser later admitted that she had been in the throes of a psychiatric episode 
and that she was in crisis and very suggestible. She had just watched Netflix's documentary on Jeffrey Epstein and imagined that like a lot of this had happened at McMaster. But as awful as that sounds, to her great credit, she stepped forward. I mean, not publicly, but stepped forward to those who were investigating it and said, "I, I, I, I'm really sorry and I'm ashamed, but, but this, this didn't happen." Uh, which is we're talking about admitting you're wrong. I mean, yeah. imagine the the stakes in admitting that. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just a huge thing. I was, I was very impressed. Um, but it also says something that university officials didn't detect the fact that this was a person in crisis and and used her um, her testimony and say, oh look, we have a second source on this. And and it was on that basis. In fact, just days after this woman formalized her complaint to the university that. Um, many of these people were uh, suspended. So that was an incredible thing. And one thing that I say in the article is that it had a sort of unusual ending because a lot of the time you hear about these social panics and there's no consequences. Mm -hmm. What was interesting about this is that the PNB department at McMaster fought back and not just the people who had been shamed and, and, um, wrongly accused. In fact, they were under instruction, as is often the case, that they couldn't say anything. Yeah. It's sort of like the Title IX investigations yeah. in the United States. I mean, we obviously we don't have Title IX in Canada, but it was something similar where mm-hmm. they were kind of they weren't allowed to say anything. They weren't even allowed to contact their colleagues. They weren't yeah. allowed to continue their academic research. Yeah. Uh, in one case, a woman, uh, the wife of, of Scott Water, who was a completely innocent woman, uh, her name dragged through the mud for a year. She was told by the university administration she couldn't complete an academic project with her dying father, who was also a psychologist. Yeah. On the other side of the world, he lived in Australia, and he, he ended up passing away. The whole thing was, was absolutely nuts. However, because it was so nuts, the PNB department as a whole fought back. Um, and, and again, not just those who were attacked. And in part, this was because a man who was at the time... The chair of the department, his name is Bruce McMillan, if I'm getting the name right, is an expert on, among other things, memory. And I got a whole trove of documents, internal correspondence involving all of this, which just made the documents made my jaw drop. Uh, and some of them I didn't even reproduce because it was just by reproducing them, I would have um, outed some of my sources and, and some completely innocent people. But in, in some of his correspondence, Bruce McMillan, Again, the chair, then the chair of the PNB department. In warning the university in mid 2020, you are embarking on something really dangerous and misguided here. Appended four attachments, which consisted of peer reviewed academic studies of recovered memory syndrome, including, if I, I, I think they were articles by Elizabeth Loftus. Mm-hmm. And he, he said, there's a two page letter, if I remember, in, in in not so many words, you should learn from history here because both main of the main complainants were offering what were claimed to be recovered memory because the primary complainant had come forward in early 2020 and said, oh, um, you know, I was sexually abused by, by Scott Water. And then months later came back and said, oh, I have all these recovered memory memories. It turns out there was a whole sex ring involved. And I think a lay person could ask themselves whether it's plausible that 
those recovered memories would assert themselves in that way, especially in a way that as you know, sort of mirrors a lot of the stuff from Jeffrey Epstein stuff that was then in the news. Um, and, and I said in the article, you know, if this had been the geology department or the botany department, I don't know if my master has a botany mm -hmm. department. I don't know if anyone has a botany <laughs> department. Um, but seems like an antique word, <laughs> but you know, or the mathematics department, I think that the university administration would not have been called out for their, their complete oh, mismanagement of this, I, but I, because it was psychologists, because it was people who study human behavior and the fallibility of memory, they, they came forward and, and I have, you know, recordings of them confronting university officials over zoom, because a lot of this played out in the first months of the, uh, the pandemic basically saying, you know, how, how, how are you presuming to lecture us about things like, you know, sexual trauma, things like, um, you know, when people are being honest and when they're, they're lying about memories, uh, about witness recollections. Like a lot of these people studied, studied these things for decades and the university president who's a chemist by the name of David Farrar, uh, inorganic chemist, I think he deals with metallic compounds or something like that. You know, he started spouting all this mumbo jumbo about like trauma informed discourse. I mean, it's just like this complete claptrap that had clearly been provided for him as a sort of a set of lines to be read out by his um, DEI people. His yeah, I mean, the whole thing was was mortifying, but it it wouldn't have ended up on my desk and it wouldn't have ended up in my article had it not been for the fact that these were, you know, world class scholars in the field of psychology who felt and also the fact that there were women involved you know it's one thing to say this guy scott water mm. did all this stuff we have seen examples of this mm. you know um you know it's, if someone you know 10 years ago came and said oh there's this guy named harvey weinstein you know mm. he he did all this horrible stuff and no one's been talking about it for 20 years you know you'd be skeptical really mm. no one's been talking about it he did all this stuff to all this women sure like you know sure pal like that mm. that's that, that bs but it was true, and and I acknowledge that in the article. So there's all sorts of examples of stuff like this being hushed up. Even as I was publishing the article, there was an example out of the the UK press of, of an esteemed columnist um, who it turns out for years has been sexually harassing people, and 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 there were efforts to to turf him out. He was an alcoholic by his own admission, uh, but th those efforts have been stymied. But that was one guy. In the case of McMaster, it was alleged there was an entire sex ring that included at, at least two female members. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, sort of the equivalent of Gislin Maxwell types based on, the, you know, Jeffrey Epstein precedent. Yeah. And I think people were like, wait a sec, this is kind of like Hollywood movie stuff. And, and it made people skeptical. So I think it was the sheer scope of sure. the false allegations Okay. That, yeah. Okay. But let me, let me point out, I mean, this is a fascinating story, but I didn't bring it up because it's salacious, although it is. And it's, and it's, you know, people are always interested in salacious news and this is a clear example. What I wanted to do actually was based on your second art, article, which I think is more, I mean, I think what's more important is what do we learn from this? Because the first one was the reporting, my 13,000 uh, words of the reporting. But then as you say, a second article was based on like, what are the policy results? Yeah, I mean, all, my reason for bringing up all of these things is ultimately to lead us to the question of how can we, yeah. what can we do as journalists, as scientists, as members of the public to try and ensure that these 
ideological abuses or dogmatic abuses or psychologically sick abuses, you know, are, are dealt with correctly. And so, yeah, in your second piece, uh, The Lessons, which is entitled, I think, The Lessons from an Academic Social Panic, I found particularly um, worth talking about. And it's those lessons, because sure. I, I will say, you know, you're probably even less, I'm, um, less susceptible to being suspicious of universe of, of of the university bureaucracy that is that is in my opinion like a cancer has taken over universities in terms of forbidding in terms of in requiring obeyance to ideas that may or may not be relevant right um and 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 totally without control of the uh, uh, i mean universities i happen to think universities should be run by academics and yeah. and um and I and and in this case, bureaucracies are now run by people who are not academics, who are not part of 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 the of the mission of the university, but are controlling what's happening there. And and, I, and that's a you know my view, and it may be extreme, but it's I, I see it more and more. And you and I and in this thing, you talk about exactly how some of the, the fact that this that these that this panic could be could take on such an official role. First of all, and secondly, such a role which was harmful to the people involved are things we should look at. And you talk about ways to try and ensure that might not happen again. So I wanted to I wanted to walk you through some of that. Sure. Well, one of the um, one of the conclusions that I came to was that there has to be some way for university officials, and I realize this the standards differ from university to university, but there has to be some way for university officials to dismiss complaints on a summary basis that just don't make sense or are crazy, that doesn't rely on a one-year process involving an external investigator. Because at the center of this controversy was the fact that you had women who came forward to something called the SVPRO, which is Sexual Violence Prevention and Response Office which essentially was, was run by one person at this time. Mm -hmm. And this one person was in charge of educating members of the university community about sexual abuse. If you thought you'd been sexually abused at the university, you came forward to this person. This person would then coach you on how to do a proper complaint. It's this not person, unusual. It's the norm, by the way. This person was then the intake official for the complaint. This the person the, the then, judge is also the prosecutor. It's also, yeah. This person would then decide if your complaint met intake requirements, and then this person would also serve on a mandatory basis based on university protocols, which were then in place, on something called the response team, which would judge, for instance, so-called interim measures, including interim suspensions. So you had one person who naturally, not to cast aspersions on this, who this one person was, this person became very highly vested in the narratives of the yeah. people she was helping. And, you know, to be fair, People do get sexually abused. And, yeah. you know, McMaster universities, tens of thousands of members of the university community, it would be unusual if you if a community that large didn't have legitimate instances of sexual abuse. When people come forward, they deserve to be treated with respect. And it is not unpredictable that this person would become vested in what she regards as the truth of these complaints that come forward and then respond accordingly when she's wearing a different hat and she has to uh, judge, you know, what interim measures are imposed and stuff like this. 
I, I talk about how there absolutely has to be checks and balances in, in the same way, like obviously we're not dealing with protocols of, of, of real criminal justice and all the constitutional safeguards that attach there too. But even in the administrative campus setting, you can't just have one person be judge and jury. Like it just, it absolutely makes no sense. The other thing is, as I wrote, uh, there has to be some way to dismiss completely complaints that are just untethered from reality. One thing that emerged from my research is that the reason that even when it was clear that these sex ring accusations made no sense, the university didn't seem to have any formal protocols oh. that allowed its officials to say, this is crazy, like, yeah, yeah, case dismissed. No... Once it's, yeah. Once you reach the nominal theoretical intake requirements for a sexual violence complaint, you have to call in an external investigator with all, all you know, that could take a yeah. year. And meanwhile, you're thrown off campus. And and I put the question to the to university officials. They, they answered some of my questions, as I detailed in the articles, but not all of them. I said, you know, this was a case where you had five or six academics who were accused of, like, being in the sex ring. And, and they got, and, and f five of them got suspended from the university. And your response is, well, we take this trauma-informed approach, and trauma can mess with your brain. So you could say, well, the person had two heads. So, but, you know, that could be the result of trauma. That's why they got the facts mixed up. And we're going to... As long as you are accusing somebody of sexual violence and you meet the, that basic nominal intake threshold for the complaint, we're going we're gonna to unroll all of this machinery of justice, including apparently the hiring an external investigator. And I put the question to them, says, well, in this and case... I think it's unfair to call it machinery of justice, but in any case, go on. So we're going to unroll... We're going to okay. unroll this bureaucratic machinery. It lies somewhere between machine of justice and inquisition. Let's let's yeah. say there's some continuum. Yeah. But but even let's say, but this investigator, by the way, was highly competent. Sure. I mean, that's one thing I acknowledged in the article. It was a woman named Catherine Mopati who, at least in regard to the individual cases, she was, was ruthless in getting after the facts. And at least one complainant, this woman who was like, who was used to everybody at the university treating what she was saying as gospel, suddenly Mopati was having none of it, and she actually withdrew from the process because she was like, wait a sec, uh, you know, this was this, this was satisfying when people believed my story, but now they're asking me hard questions. Um, but I put the questions to the university, what if instead of five people, what if 50 people had been accused? What if the university president had been accused? What if the woman running the SVPRO herself had been accused of sexual abuse? Would she have been suspended? Would the university president have been suspended? Would the board of governors have been suspended? Like, because that kind of would have made as much sense as a lot of the elements in the science fiction Epstein-like narrative that's, that, that we're seeing. They wouldn't answer those questions. Um, they just kept repeating mantras about how, you know, we're trauma-informed. Um, and again, there's a grain of truth to all this. Is it true that people sometimes garble their recollections of actual events based on suffering trauma? Of course it's true. You know, there's famous, famous examples of Holocaust survivors yeah. who, who say wrong things. They say, oh, you know, there was a factory that made soap out of our bones and stuff like that. There's this famous case, this is mm. 30, 40 years ago, I think it was on Donahue, of all things. And, and, and no one is saying, well, this survivor got the fact wrong, so therefore the Holocaust didn't happen. You'd have, you know, only anti-Semitic lunatics are saying things like that. However, to extrapolate from that and say, well, you know, we want to be trauma-informed, so we're going to strip ourselves of the ability 
to dismiss on a summary basis even the most far-fetched claims means you're going to get a lot of false positives. And at some point, you have to you have to be able to do that, or you're just going to ruin lives. Well, and I, let, let me let me come back. I, I mean, I think you've made an extremely important point, and I think I will come back at you and say I think the as long as there's no as long as these other officers do not report to ultimately an academic administration, but run independently, then the academic administration will feel like they have, well, they'll be terrified of, of, of responding and saying this case should be just dismissed. Uh, yeah. And, and so there it's this independent bureau infrastructure that's occurring obviously in McMaster, but I've seen it happen in many other institutions where, where, um, literally they're not answerable and um and it would be it would be the same to say hold on this this doesn't pass muster as it would be to say that they in that the that the indigenous graves might not be might not be um true uh, it, it's almost exactly the same it'd be viewed as, as saying you are a you're enabling rather than rather than helping if you to be fair uh, because I realize that the organizational architecture is different at all universities. And at some universities, the D, uh, DEI department operates as a kind of um, power unto itself. Um, however, at McMaster, the architecture has changed somewhat, but the SVPRO, which was then part of uh, something called the EIO, um, answered to the provost. Uh, VP Academic, mm -hmm. uh, who then is now is a woman named Susan Tige, T I G H E, and so it was at least if you look at the org chart within the power of the provost to to ask hard questions about all this. Um, I, I don't think it would have been in Susan Tige's remit to to simply walk in and say, "Well, I've dismissed this case, that case, and the other case." But the it's other often case in, in org charts, but but you know, but yeah, morally it's, speaking, it's a different. Yeah, it's, it's and I have to say, by the way, one has to give credit to McMaster because I've also seen most universities don't even hire an external investigator. It's right. uh, the investigation is also done by the person who takes the original data or somewhere other thing, and right. I've seen it over and over happen. So yeah, where there's I mean, no one thing, McMaster or at least this, this investigator got right. Um, the other thing that I say is that to some extent, this is a case of university administrators being over-resourced because at every important decision point where leadership was required, and you had Susan Tai, provost, um, David Farrar as university president, they didn't want to make a decision, so they just they hired a law. I think that I cataloged there's like three or four different law firms that were brought in to investigate or you know to facilitate a listening session or you know to advise on best practices. They brought in a communications firm when they screwed up the original messaging and essentially leaked the names of all the people they had suspended, despite the fact that they they didn't actually say their names, but instead they just leaked all this information that allowed everybody including student journalists, to figure out who had been suspended. Um, millions of dollars have, have been paid out to various third parties. They had a guy from Baker McKenzie, sort of gold-plated Bay Street uh, law firm, uh, multinational law firm who, who, was, who was on speed dial whenever they needed. Uh, his name was George Avram, uh, memory serves, uh, you know, as, as, this, as their fixer, essentially, during this entire crisis. 
millions and millions of dollars in legal costs. And whenever they were presented with any kind of opportunity to nip this thing in the bud, it was just like, let's kick the ball down the field for another six months or 12 months and have another investigation and bring in a but, consultant. But you can understand, I mean, I think the point is, we need to understand that that's a natural response. Why would you right. want to nip, if, if you nip in the bud, suddenly you're seen on social media as protecting potential. For me, oh, it's absolutely. so much easier yeah. to pass the buck or to just even more aggressively get in front and say, we're going to devote all the resources of this institution to make sure that, because it, yeah. it plays well to the public, it plays well to the media, it plays well social media and, and to students and families. And so the, the question and, and, you know, to come down to the, the, these issues of how can we, what can we do? To, it's a, it's a generic case of, of, of how can we encourage a, a system that doesn't encourage people to do the easy or uh, or popular, especially media popular thing, whether it's vaccines or from China or or indigenous or or in this case, it's a deep problem that and and that's the reason I'm bringing it up. You it's know, a it's a huge it's... problem in terms of system incentives because when the university did essentially they didn't say as much, but effectively these. Uh, these suspended academics, all but one of them, all but Scott Water himself, who, as mm. I said, was was censured uh, and is still fighting for to keep his job through uh, internal uh, tribunal mechanisms. Uh, all of them were exonerated, effectively exonerated, and, and and brought back to work. When the university, through, through gritted teeth, I should say, announced as much and actually gave what I think was a deceptive, a school-wide yeah. announcement, mm -hmm. which which. It's like they were, they couldn't bring themselves to, to say to they admit. were wrong. <laughs> yeah, it was just pathetic. And, and, and one of the main bones of contention that remains among um, the grievers in, within PNB, um, they were at least able to say, hey, this wasn't our decision. This was this independent investigator named Catherine Mopati, although I don't think they used her name. And they were able to strip themselves of any moral agency and say, hey, we've got complaints. There's this investigator. And this is part of a theme where if you look on the McMaster website, they make this like big song and dance of like our leadership team, our leaders who provide leadership mm -hmm. in things like in leader, leaderology. Like mm -hmm. they, they can't shut up about how they're these great grandees who preside over the campus with their wonderful leadership. But then when you actually look at a case study like this, the absolute last thing any single one of them wants to do is, is attach their name to exactly the kind of decision that any real leader would do and say, yeah. what our university is being, our, our entire department is being destroyed by these batshit accusations about a sex ring that everyone here knows is crazy, but no one in this room will say so. And so we're going to let a half dozen people have their reputations get trashed and we're going to spend $10 million and let a, an entire department suffer for reasons that we know are, are BS. I'm a leader. This ends now. We're well, that's, that's what leadership uh, looks like. If, but no well, now you've that. hit a nail on the head. I mean, I, again, I, it's been a theme for me, but, uh, but we're, we're, it requires leadership and integrity. And we're not seeing it in almost every area of from government which well I, we're used to governments perhaps not having leadership or integrity but it's a cliche but in academia say, yeah. in scientific i mean for example i'll give you an example uh, at which i've talked i may have talked about colette but 
you know, we're, we see scientific leaders, the former Francis Collins, who was an, someone I know, I've known for a long time, and I guess I consider a friend in some ways, um, when he was head of the National Institutes of Health, said, we are, are the field, the, you know, biomedical research, NIH is systemically racist and has always been that way. Now, the point is, if he really believed that, he should have resigned, right? Sure. I mean, I mean, they, you know, they never it's, do. it's just it's just they lip never service. Do. Uh, no, because they never he, do. because he doesn't really believe it. It's just it's just it's not leadership. It's not saying, hold on, we're gonna we're let's look and see. Let's do a study. Let's try and let's try and take this carefully. No, we we understand that the tide of public opinion is that academia is racist or academia is this or science is this is systemically racist because that's now the thing of the moment and i'll i'll get out in front of it so leaders and you can understand because so much of government support public support donor support depends upon the public perception rather than reality so yeah. the, one of the things i i guess i want to hit to with you as a as a journalist i don't want to put all of the blame on journalists but in some sense yeah. the question is how can we assist how can journalism how can media assist leaders and other people to 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 have integrity and backbone instead of jumping on every salacious story and then never writing up a story about it when it's wrong later on um uh at the new york times or i mean i've seen it so many examples because it's so much easier to get clicks if you if you jump on the on on the on 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 the you know, on, on the obviously salacious aspect of whatever it is. Uh, uh, and, and then never is it in your interest to then step back and say we're wrong or, you know, it just let's move on to the next next thing. So is there a, is there a solution in an area where journalists are, are where journalism is so under attack financially that every that every journalistic group in some sense is vying to get attention? Um, Instead of saying we're gonna, you know, we're gonna just, you know, it doesn't sound as nice, but we're gonna try and be rational and reasonable. Uh, well, look, this this is not a new problem. Uh, yeah. You know the the old expression. I forget whether it was attributed to Winston Churchill or Mark Twain, who they get attributed, you know, every famous expression. Uh, you know, the a, a lie travel a, a lie travels around the world while while the truth is putting on its shoes. Yeah. Words to that effect. Yeah. Uh, you know. Someone made this complaint, you know, generations ago, and it's still somewhat the case. I like to think my own journalism provides some antidote to that, but to some extent, the problem in journalism might be getting worse. Um, in Canada, at least, and maybe this is the case in the United States, there is a strong symbiotic relationship between university administrators and especially local media. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, McMaster is a world-class university. As a world-class university you know, they might recruit famous scientists or whatnot. And if you're covering the academic beat for like the Hamilton Spectator newspaper yeah. or, you know, the St. Catherine's Standard or, you know, this or the Toronto Star, like um, you, a lot of your bread and butter stories are going to be like interviews or profiles on, um, on famous academics yeah. or like, you know, discoveries that are made in universities or, you know, there's some scandal that takes place at the university and you want the comms official to return mm -hmm. your call. And um, and it's the case that journalism is hemorrhaging jobs. And let's face it, a lot of the good jobs you can get as an ex-journalist are like 
assistant communications department, <laughs> you know, assistant <laughs> communications manager at a place like McMaster. McMaster runs its own in-house publication. Sure, I think it's called they all do. The Daily News or something. And sometimes yeah. when I look at the org charts, there's like 15 people who run the communications department, yeah. which is like more than some Canadian magazines. Major newspapers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and and a lot of these people... It's because there's a lot of money involved. I mean, it's money, right? I mean, you're trying... And it's not corruption. I don't want to say it's like... No, it's not oh, corruption. You know, it's just you want to... the truth. You want to get donors. I mean, the point is universities are relying on government funding yeah. and, and external donors, and they have to, therefore, play to that audience. But, but it, yourself, the, the same is true. But I would also say, you know, again, as someone who looks at journalism, that same connection that you're talking about, yeah, journalists have to be pals in some sense with the university that they're covering. Same thing has been true in politics for the longest while as well. You want, you have to have sources. Is, is, is oppositional. So politics, at least well, in the United States, you have... If you're if you're at the Daily Caller or if you're at I don't know the Daily Beast or whatever, yeah. like you know, there's there's a natural oppositional thing where you've got people from both sides leaking well, stuff. Maybe With except academia, you see that you know if you that, if on the other hand if you want to have sources, you can see that the pressure on institutions. Well, I mean, in in case say of Fox News or whatever, you you want to have access to the highest levels. In some sense, you have to play ball. University. So going back to McMaster, yeah. because this, this is actually something I mentioned on the story. The local newspaper is the Hamilton Spectator. And the Hamilton Spectator covered this a ton when it was still thought that all these allegations were real. So mm -hmm. I went by detail. There was a reporter there. She's no longer there anymore. Her name's Catherine Clark. She did a, a 5,400 word story detailing in every salacious, credulous, molecular level detail of the accusation what the first complainant against Scott Water, uh, her name, the, the court called her SL. Yeah. Uh, like every single detail is written. 5,400 is a huge story. That's a huge but, story for a newspaper. For a newspaper. For a newspaper. Um, and so, as and there were, there were numerous other stories about you know the horrors inflicted on the school community by Scott Water. But then Scott Water uh, was cleared of criminal wrongdoing in 2022 in open court and uh then university uh, on top of that university investigator had determined that none of the sex ring stuff was true and guess what the hamilton spectator lost interest in the story real quick because there's a lot of yeah it's a, you know as, this isn't a conspiracy but imagine yourself you know you're Catherine clark or any of the reporters and if you write this tell-all about the horrors allegedly inflicted on this poor woman by this Jeffrey Epstein-like sex criminal, you can win awards in Canadian journalism yeah, yeah. on that basis. Yeah, and you don't get awards for saying this is wrong. Is I'm it? an Australian, so I'm based in Toronto, but what does it tell you that this is three years after the McMaster, in, you know, this imaginary sex scandal uh, unfolded at McMaster University, that the outlet that ended up finally writing about because the people involved in this mm. were shopping the story around yeah, the Canadian yeah. outlets. Well, I, yeah. I have to imagine. I mean, I don't know that for a fact, yeah. but it's it'd be shocking that they weren't trying to interest. I had I had so many sources on the story. It's yeah. just clear that people mm -hmm. at McMaster were, were waiting for three years for someone to write the definitive story on this. The fact that they had to come to an Australian outlet, albeit, you know, a, I'm a Canadian journalist, Think about that, that they couldn't get anyone at the Toronto Star interested. They couldn't yeah. get anyone at the Hamilton Spectator interested. They couldn't get anyone interested, local radio, CBC, my God, like this, the CBC would treat the story as radioactive. It's yeah. the opposite of, of believe, believe the victim. That's 
this I, this is not something I got into because I don't want you know I didn't want the focus of the story to be. But it's it's what I want to get into. It's the problem. It's a real that issue. It's yeah, a real and, issue. You know, there's main there, there's obviously no easy solution, but I want to raise it because I think the only way to, to change these things is get the public more aware of the situation and 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 that's why I think you know that's why part of the reason why we do this is we're trying to get people aware of wonderful things about the world and other things that people should be concerned with. But this brings with. us back full circle to your introduction because, I, yeah. and by the way, we, we've been doing this for three hours, so I, I yeah, think I, I'm going to collapse. I, but I, I, I want to bring it like, like you know, the classic shape in antiquity was always yeah. the circle, and I want to bring it yeah, back. Yeah, that's what I was trying to do just now, too. So, so the full circle, when you introduced <laughs> me, you said en passant, you said, oh, you write for Quillette, and, you know, you write for Quillette, and, like, Quillette is considered like a bete noir among, you know, many people. It's like they call it conservative, even though it's not conservative. The reason Quillette is so controversial in certain circles is that we're not particularly conservative, but we do tell the truth about stories like this. And the story that I wrote about McMaster would be so much easier to dismiss because I know it's been making the rounds. Yeah. McMaster, I, I get emails from people at McMaster yeah. thanking me for writing the story. Yeah. If this story had appeared in like the Canadian equivalent of the Daily Caller or the Canadian yeah. equivalent of like Breitbart, yeah, people would just say, ah, you know, this this, this conservative culture war trash. Yeah. But because like Quillette is absolutely not an anti-vaxxer publication, mm. and like you know, half my writers are, are LGBT, and we're we're read mostly by liberals and academics and people in tech. Like we're not a particularly yeah. conservative publication. Quillette is regarded as all the more dangerous because we cannot be dismissed as serving a political agenda yeah like we don't write about politics typically like i don't we talked before about pierre polyevre yeah. feels like a day ago but it was probably a couple hours yeah. ago i i don't write articles about how great yeah. pierre polyevre is i don't write articles about how terrible trudeau is we don't really deal with partisan politics we deal with trends in science and academia and that's why you know that's why i've personally been attracted to writing and it always amazes me that when i'm then i'm now you know, people call, you know, right-wing conservative pundit because I, I write for Quillette every now and then. It always amuses me, or for the Wall Street Journal, for that matter. Um, but it saddens me at the same time. I mean, I love, I'm, I'm, I enjoy my interactions with both you and Claire, and I, I really like being able to, able to write about virtually anything in, that I think is on this line of, so, of promoting science, reason, yep. etc. And all I think all of the stuff I try and write in one way or another is that way, whether it's pure science or not. But it saddens me that that you know I used to write all the time for the New York Times, but it's harder to get. It's just you can't. It saddens me that you that things have become so politicized that the, you, those stories that don't appear anymore in that. Well, in let those, me show you uh, about the New York Times. It just so happens that I was looking. So as we're having this conversation, the New York Times has been going full court press on how evil the U.S. Supreme Court is because they yeah. struck down mm. affirmative yeah. action, right? Yeah. This was at Harvard and UNC. Yeah. And then, I don't know if you can see it, but this is this is actual survey data. Yeah. That was published today. It turns out 69% of American survey respondents, including 58% of Democratic survey yeah. respondents, agreed with the proposition race-conscious admissions at Harvard, a private school in the University of North Carolina, a public school, were unlawful. 69% of all respondents agreed with the court, including 58% of Democrats. And I was reading this. I'm, I'm a seven-day-a-week New York Times subscriber. I, I like the New York Me Times too. despite the politics. Me too. And I was like, wait a sec. 
So you just ran like 175 op-ed pieces about how the Supreme Court had been taken over by these right-wing wingnuts who, you know, were setting us back to, uh, you know, the days before the U.S. Civil War. And now you're telling me, like, who are the real extremists here? You know, the, the 68 69% of people who disagree with you or the 31% of people who agree with you. And, and so it doesn't surprise me that, that your op-eds aren't being published in the New York well, Times. Well, I know, and it saddens me because uh, I think that's the way I want to end, you know, coming back to this at the beginning, that's data. Yeah. And that should be the basis of it. journalism, politics, our society, and generally, if we tried to base, base our decision-making ultimately on evidence. And so, that, I mean, you know, I, it sounds trite to say that, but that's the, I mean... Ultimately, that's the solution. But how we can get there is a long is a long haul. And I think we need to all be aware and not just pointing fingers at others, but ourselves as well. And that's what, you know, Richard Feynman said, the easiest person to fool is yourself. And so you have to try and prove equally hard if you're a scientist that what you your theory is wrong as well as right. And it wouldn't be great if all of us did that more more generally. And, and yeah, uh, although. I'm I'm kind of mildly shocked that Richard Feynman hasn't been canceled yet. I mean, yeah, well, he, he yeah, he, you know, give give it time. Okay, give it All time, right. and and uh, <laughs> and in some places he has been. Um, okay. I, yeah, I can give you some examples, but we won't go there. I think we've hit okay. enough hot button topics. All Look, right. thanks for thanks for doing this, and I think I think that the moral. I mean, we talked about a lot of in, I think interesting subjects, but the the idea of trying to get that that I think is is flows through all of our discussion including your training as, a, as an engineer, is that, is that it's really important for all of us, journalists, academics, everyone, to, be, to question ourselves, be willing to say we're wrong, and, um, and be open about it, and uh, base our decisions on evidence and be willing to change our mind when the evidence shows us we're wrong. And wouldn't it be a great world if we had that way, and let's hope we can be in a better world. And it's a better world for you having agreed to take three hours of your life to talk to me on this subject and I really appreciate it. Um, well, my, my theory was that it would be time well spent and uh, this, this N equals one experiment has confirmed that I was correct. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation a non-profit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit originsprojectfoundation.org.